get your family vehicles ready for summer driving with early Memorial Day deals at Dobbs. Click on GoToDobbs.com for money, saver retire, and service deals today. Dobbs. With 43 locations, real deals are always close by. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Time now for the BK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. She's got a pretty good speech in between periods. Uh, you know, the boys just, they respond. It was a different style of game. We played a lot quicker. Shoots it on rebound. They score! Alexandra pulls the Blues to within one. Leaves it. Kairou Todrag. Score! Just like that. 3-3. 10-4-3 in their last 17 games. In that stretch, they have the seventh best points percentage in the NHL. They are the second best points percentage in the Western Conference behind only the LA Kings. And last night, Alex Ferrario, that was a perfect representation in a single game. That encapsulated what this blue season has been here in St. Louis. They started out shaky. They had a good goal early, but then they played pretty poorly basically for the first two periods otherwise and then finally in the third period it looked like oh this is the blues we were all expecting and i think the best part if you're looking at like the personification in one game of what the season has been is which line did it it was thomas kairu and buchnevich were the ones that kind of revived the team from the dead apparently craig berube gave a great uh second period intermission or second intermission rather speech The boys come out, they get it done in the third period. They end up coming back and getting a big comeback victory. It was just the third time this year that the Blues have won after trailing by two or more goals. They are now three, 13 and two in those situations with Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson. I'm Brandon Kylie. That audio you heard coming back from break was what it sounded like right here in your home for the Blues last night. Alex, your biggest takeaway from yet another victory for the Blues, this one coming against a team that you're trying to compete with for a wild card spot, was what? Before I answer that, over under how many Craig Berube F bombs were given in that second intermission? 175, and I couldn't take the over quick enough. <laughs> I I asked Joe that last night on postgame. I said, like, I want to know what happened in that speech. And Joe said, go back and watch the Stanley Cup speech that he gave probably that in a nutshell but look the biggest takeaway in this one is even if you think the blues are playing poorly they have the talent to turn it on in one period and come back and what's strange about it is you were watching 
it was the mirror image of yourself in the third period. Like you played poorly in the second. You allowed the backdoor tap in in the first. You got out muscled in front of the net in the first. And then what happened in the third period? You outmuscled them in front of the net. You caught them puck watching in the third period. And then a turnover, a sloppy play in the offensive zone by Calgary, led to the odd man rush up the ice in overtime that was successful and the Blues capitalized. So that that's the team you were playing. It was kind of a, a measure of yourself. Are you better than this team? Are you better than what you played the first chunk of the season? And the Blues proved that they were. Now, not to be Debbie Downer, but oh, I think. Oh, oh good Lord. Are you serious? Oh. Are you serious? I expect you're from BK, this not you. energy today. Are you serious? Can I finish? I can know BK will ruin can, my day at 11 a.m. Can I finish? <laughs> Sorry. Can I finish? I just can't believe this, man. I think you should have got two points in regulation against oh, I, this team. I do agree with that, actually. I, you, you're the better team than Calgary. Like, their goaltender was very shaky last night. Their defense is good. They don't allow a whole lot of shots on goal, but the Blues, I feel, have more talent than Calgary in terms of their roster. So that was a game that, look, you got two points, so who really cares about it? But they did pick up a point on you, and you had to win that in overtime, which is not the tiebreaker anymore. It's regulation victories. So that was one of those games that, even that you got two points, it still stings a little bit. But you're playing consistent hockey right now, and that's all you can ask for. And in that game, your stars showed up. So that's the big takeaway for me is that top when that top line's going, and you got Booch, Thomas, and uh, Cairo all clicking at the same time. I mean, you're talking about maybe one of the best lines in hockey. I, I mean, just seeing those three last night, I mean, you can see the upside for them. But there are those times where you look through the first two periods and you go, Oh man, that that top line hasn't really done a whole lot. Neither, neither did the whole team, to be honest with you, in the first two periods. So, seeing that top line click and come together in that third period to lead you to that victory against Calgary, that, that's a good sign because we talked about it. I think we kind of briefly mentioned it on air yesterday, and I know Darren Payne mentioned it on the morning show was that was the line that needed to step up in this little two game set with Calgary if you're going to jump back into the playoff picture. They did it for a period last night, and now that you kind of split points with Calgary yesterday, I think tomorrow's game was must-win no matter what, but it really is now in terms of if you can take four points and they only get one out of this two-game yeah. set, that, that that's a win for the St. Louis Blues. Yeah, I, I hear what you're saying, Alex, but don't, let me tell you why you're wrong. Well, that's not true. I just don't care. <laughs> like, just rack up the points right now any way you can get them. And if that means going to overtime more often than not, so be it. Like, that's fine. I, I can't be upset, especially after that one. Like, you say they should have won in regulation. They probably shouldn't have won that game. They played really poorly for 40 minutes. And they had a miraculous comeback. And so I have a really tough time. See, but you're a glass empty kind of guy. I'm a glass full kind of guy. They showed in the third period that they play very well and they're better than the other team. So if they wouldn't have had to get a pep talk in between the second and third period, you probably were dominating this team in the first and second. Yeah, I mean, that you know, the schedule's tough. Like, we've got all of these different things that go into it. You had the back-to-back on Saturday and Sunday. And, you know, they, they traveled the border four separate times over the course of the last... Probably had so. to fly coach. Yeah, hey, I mean, it, it's tough. What can you ask for? You know, they didn't have their legs in the first two periods. They got him back in the third after Baruby yelled at him. So yeah. they, they ended up coming back and getting the win. You say I'm the glass half empty. Man, I'm the one that's coming on here today talking about how great that was last night. You are the one that's coming on all pessimistic. I don't need that kind of energy on this show right now. The Blues last night 
showed you what they're capable of. And they've showed us this all year. Just when you think you're out, they find a way to pull you back in. They're doing this right now without Ryan O'Reilly, without Vladimir Tarasenko, without Tori Krug, without Marco Scandella, without Robert Bortuzzo. And I think that's what's most impressive to me, Alex, is like, as I'm watching the team right now, I'm also thinking bigger picture, not just for this season, but what the future holds for the St. Louis Blues. And it makes me feel better about what the future is going to hold, regardless of what happens at the trade deadline, regardless of what they decide to do in the offseason, because you now have a line with Thomas, Kairou, and Buchnevich that on any given night can just go out there and win you a game. That's what happened last night. What happened last night is that those guys, those three, put the team on their back and said, let's go. Let's go. In this third period, we are going to produce the way that we all know that we can. And since December 2nd, that's, or excuse me, since December 6th, that's what they've done. Thomas, Kairou, and Buchnevich in the Blues' last 17 games have combined for 22 goals and 50 points in that 17-game stretch. You have now developed what is probably one of the top lines in the NHL for the next few years. So that that for me, that is the single most significant thing that has taken place in this stretch of games where the Blues have started playing much better hockey. Yeah, because I think we, in the midst of their struggles, looked at the team and said they got a top line, but then you're probably talking about a third line. Like, who's the second line? Because O'Reilly and Vladdy were underperforming. And I think that's what uh, Saad and Shen have provided for this team. And you enjoy the fact that that Kairou and Thomas were the heroes in that game last night and Pavel Buchnevich, all three score because you didn't want to have to just rely solely on one team that or one line. That's that's a concern that you always have is like when one line's performing, the other line's like, oh, well, they got this. And that wasn't the case in this game. I think Kairou, Thomas and Buchnevich knew that they needed to step up from their road trip, which wasn't the greatest. And they answered the bell. So if you're Doug Armstrong, you're absolutely optimistic with this team because you thought this was going to be a hard retool in the offseason, and this might be a pretty quick turnaround if you do decide to move on from your free agents. You could look at this and say, like, we've got pieces in place. It's just a matter of tweaking it here and there, and you're talking about a window being open like it was last year. Are we now talking about the Blues as a, like, when we discuss the Blues, is it time to start talking about them in relation to the playoffs? Because I feel like we've gone through like ups and downs this season with the team and it's they've earned it. (laughs) They've earned the ups and downs. Is it time to now start talking about them like our evaluation of the Blues is what is it going to take for them to get into the playoffs now that they are? I mean, right outside of the playoffs, they're technically tied with Edmonton in terms of points and games played. In all reality, they are behind both Nashville and Colorado because of the points percentage side of things because they have uh, games in hand. But is that how we're starting to evaluate this team now? I mean, I think you have to. Uh, I mean, you're, you've are you proven that you're better than Calgary. You've beat them twice already this season. You have an opportunity to sweep the season series tomorrow. You've beaten Edmonton two of the three times, who also sit in a wild card spot. You split the two games so far with Nashville this season. You've beaten Colorado, and you've beaten Minnesota. Like, you're three points away, and I understand Minnesota's got two games in hand, but you're three points away from catching Minnesota in third place in the Central. So, yeah, I mean, Damn. we're past the point now of talking about getting a top 10 draft pick anymore. Now I think you're starting to alter your conversations to, 
hey, playoffs are a real thing right now for this team. They look like a team that can compete for the playoffs. The question is, what are they going to do with this roster as you approach March 3rd? And we'll talk about that as we go along today. The Air Comfort Service X line is 314-399-9646 to get involved throughout the show today. Coming up in about 15 minutes or so, yesterday we talked about the uh, the prospects piece that was put up on MLB.com. Jonathan Mayo was the one who wrote that piece. Want to ask him what he heard from scouts around the league on Matthew Libertor and Mason Wynn, why they were considered to be quote unquote overrated prospects. Also want to get his thoughts on uh, Jordan Walker, who could contribute immediately upon his arrival this upcoming season. So we'll talk to Jonathan Mayo about all of that and plenty more coming up in about 15 minutes or so. But next, it has just been announced officially that Tua Tungavailoa will not play for the Dolphins in their playoff opener this weekend. It has also been announced today that Lamar Jackson feels unlikely to play this weekend. What does the future hold for those two quarterbacks and those two organizations based on this? We'll talk about it next year on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. To me, I could see the Dolphins pursuing a more stable veteran and go that route with Tua also on the roster. Uh, And maybe someone who ultimately would unseat him, say like a Derek Carr type player. That was Jeff Darlington on ESPN earlier today alongside Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson. I'm Brandon Kiley talking about what the Dolphins future is at the quarterback position after it has officially been announced Tua Tungavailoa is going to miss this weekend's play-in game. We do not know the status right now of Teddy Bridgewater, but if he is also out, it's going to be Skylar Thompson going up against the Buffalo Bills. There's a reason why that line is as big as it is right now. Tyreek's already super high on Skylar Thompson. He said that Tua earlier this year, the most catchable ball he's ever seen. He said he was going to be better than Patrick Mahomes. And now he's all in on Skylar Thompson. We can definitely trust what... uh, Tyreek Hill has to say about his quarterbacks. Miami that's for sure. To develop quarterbacks or something. hundred percent. They are the Baltimore Orioles of developing quarterbacks is essentially Let's not what go that far. the Dolphins Baltimore are. That good. Great talent. So the Dolphins aren't the only team right now dealing with some quarterback injury issues. The Ravens also have some problems of their own. Lamar Jackson, according to Jordan Schultz, is dealing with, quote, extreme swelling in his knee and remains very limited. Uh, he he has been told, Jordan Schultz says, that this has nothing to do with his contract and it is a, quote, uphill battle for Lamar to be able to play this weekend against the Bengals. Alex, I wanted to bring these two up in particular because both teams have made the playoffs despite the injuries to their respective quarterbacks because they are talented rosters. But as we go into this wild card weekend, it seems like there is both immediate and long-term questions at the quarterback position for both teams. How do you view, A, the Dolphins and the Ravens in the immediate future, but B, how does this play into their plans with their quarterbacks long-term? I I really don't know, specifically for Miami, because it felt like when they brought in Mike McDaniels that it was backing the Tua train. It was saying, like, Tua's going to be the guy, we've got the weapons around him, and now we're going to let him run with this. And you can't go to the draft and say we're going to get somebody to play there. And free agency with quarterbacks or the trade route with quarterbacks, it always just makes me nervous when you've got a system in place with your weapons 
And then you say, well, let's go find somebody who can fit into this. And maybe you're able to. Like, you can go out there and get a Jimmy G who might be able to play into that system. But we've also seen it go haywire for the Indianapolis Colts, where they just go into the offseason every year and say, well, let's just get a quarterback. You got the system in place, just put a quarterback who's competent enough, and then it falls apart. So Miami's a a really interesting one. And and for Baltimore, I, I just feel like Baltimore might be at the point where and this is weird because they just spent, what was it, $50 million on a linebacker yesterday? Baltimore might be at $100 million. They might be at the point where they say, we have to go and kind of start from scratch with our quarterback. Because if you trade Lamar, you're not going to get a quarterback who can come back in place of it, are you? It'd be tough. I mean, if, unless if it's fields the fields available, things, yeah. But then that... But other, there's not a lot of too, though. And there's not a lot of quarterbacks that fit kind of what Baltimore's looking for, which is a... Uh, dual threat quarterback, guy that can throw, but also can really utilize his legs like Lamar can. Uh, r- real quick for me on, on the just right now, looking at it, um, you don't have to watch the two games on Saturday or Sunday. You don't have to watch Bills and Dolphins because Bills are going to kill the Dolphins, and you don't have to watch Bengals Ravens if Lamar ends up getting ruled out because we just saw that game. That game wasn't close. You only got to worry about Giants and Vikings. That's the only game you got to worry about. But long term. I, I, I think Baltimore's still going to stick with Lamar. I, I think Baltimore will ultimately franchise him. They'll go this route, they'll do it two times, and then they'll figure it out from there because I, they're not going to reach a contract extension partly because of this knee issue. But I, I think they will run it back. I Based on that reporting, he's still dealing with extreme swelling and it's uphill battle. It's nothing to do with his contract. Makes me feel a little bit better compared to yesterday when Baltimore's like, hey, we don't even know where Lamar is. So... I, they did the Logan Brown with yeah. Lamar. They're like, oh, is he here? <laughs> yeah. So I, All right, back to Logan Brown. I still, you watch. I still think that L- Lamar's going to get franchised. I, I think they're going to figure that out. I, I don't think they're moving on from him. I, Miami's an interesting one because there was talk that they wanted to move from Tua last, last year. There was talk the year prior when they had Brian uh, Flores, Flores there that they were looking at potentially moving on from Tua, and they wanted to see what it looked like in in McDaniel's offense. And look, it it has looked good when Tua's been healthy, but there's just so many question marks with his health. And with that being the case, and you've got a quarterback like Jimmy Garoppolo who's played in a system that McDaniel runs in the past, and we've seen Jimmy G can be propped up with the weapons that surround him, uh, it may make more sense for them to go out there and get a Jimmy G. I, I just think there's too many health concerns with Tua to where you say, yeah, let's run it back, because then you may get stuck in the same spot where you're at now where you look at that roster and you go, Man, they're better than going into the playoffs being nine and eight and being the seventh seed. Problem is, they just got a quarterback that can't stay on the field, and that's a major issue for me. Well, talk about a quarterback that can't stay on the field. Welcome to Jimmy Garoppolo's world. Like the the whole reason why the 49ers even considered moving on from him to begin with when they decided to draft Trey Lance was because of his inability to stay healthy. And once again, we're at a spot where he started for the 49ers, he ended up getting hurt, and now they're having to fill in as a result. I think Jimmy Garoppolo makes a ton of sense for them. Don't get me wrong, but just from a pure, like, he fits the system. We've seen him play in the Mike McDaniel offense before, and he's a really solid, capable quarterback. I think the trouble here is part of why Tua struggled, or at least what they're saying, why he struggled, was the mental side of the game, where he just lacked confidence. He he wasn't the same confident player that he was in college, and part of that came from his coach, Brian Flores, was always wanting to, to have somebody else at the quarterback position. If the Dolphins go out there this offseason and sign somebody else or trade for somebody else, you have to move on from Tua. It's over. If you decide that you're going to go that direction, you have to do a clean sweep. It is a new quarterback room for us here in Miami because Tua will then be broken. Like You can no longer claim that you have confidence in him if you bring in a Jimmy Garoppolo or somebody of that ilk who is probably going to be the starter the moment that they arrive in town. 
So that's where I think things get really difficult. And if you're the Dolphins, I think you almost have to do that. Like, how can you trust that Tua is going to be okay long term? And right now, you are all in. I, I saw a graph yesterday on Twitter. There is no team when it comes to cap space and draft capital that has less offseason resources available to them than the Miami Dolphins. They are now where the Rams were a couple of years ago, where it is all in time. We are trying to win now. And if we don't win now, oh, bleep. Like something is going to go awry, and now we have no resources, and we didn't win. They are the anti-Rams in that regard, where everything was worth it for L.A. It would not be worth it in this scenario for the Dolphins. They've got to find a quarterback. So that's where I think they are. I think the Ravens are a little different. Where it's like, man, if you have Lamar, they could be a team that is like, you know, there's always the nobody believes in us team in the playoffs, and that's the team that nobody wants to play. That would be the Ravens for me, if Lamar Jackson were playing. Because he is that dynamic, he is that special as an athlete. And that defense has really come around over the second half of the season. But without him on the field, I just don't know what to make of that offense. They have no wide receivers to to speak of. J.K. Dobbins has been solid. Most of that, though, is because of their offensive line. He looks like he's still dragging his leg around at times this year. So I I don't really know what they're going to do. I think the Dolphins is a little bit easier to manage. The Ravens, man, good luck with that. I mentioned the team that is like the, they came out of nowhere. Yesterday, I was seeing. I, I saw some of the updated odds to win the Super Bowl this year. Alex, I'm curious. If I said I'm giving you $100, free of charge, I'm giving you this $100, the only stipulation is you have to place it on a Super Bowl bet. You have to place it on one team to win the Super Bowl. You can go with the Chiefs, who are at 3-1 to one right now. Those are the lowest odds of any team to win the Super Bowl. Or you could go with the Dolphins at 60-1 to one to smart. potentially maximize your profit That's on this smart bet. Money. It's $103. If you could place a bet on anybody and you were trying to make the most money possible based on that bet, who are you going with for this year's playoffs? Cincinnati. And I don't think I'm making a lot of money off that. What are their odds currently at? Eight to one. I've got eight the link one? in there for you. I, was yeah. say, I thought it was six to one yesterday, but eight to one, that would probably be my bet because I think they're playing the most confident and consistent football of any team going into the playoffs. Dallas, to me, is still kind of like a dark horse I'd like to throw money on, but I am a little nervous of their inconsistency down the stretch. So, yeah, my, mine would be Cincinnati because I think they've got all the tools. They were there last year. I think they got a taste of it. So if I'm putting 100 bucks down to make money, Cincinnati. Cincinnati's who I had as well because I, I like that those odds that they're sitting at, they feel like the ones that I can look at them and I can go, yeah, I can see them getting to the Super Bowl and they're the best odds or the have the highest chance, or I don't know how to correctly phrase this, but they have the be- the lowest odds, in ter- highest odds, excuse me, in terms of teams that I would say I-, I could see actually making the Super Bowl. Sure. Like I look at the team right below them, the Cowboys. I, I couldn't see, I can't see the Cowboys making really? the Super Bowl. I can't, I That's can't mine. buy into it. That's really. mine. Here's why. I think the Bucks are not very good. Um, you, you look at what the Bucks have been all year long. I know that they were able to make the playoffs, and they've had some moments lately where their offense looked good, especially against the Panthers where Tom Brady threw it all over the yard. The Panthers were without their best cornerback in that game. Everybody's been shredding the Panthers through the air when they have a competent quarterback. And other than that, here's what the uh, Bucks offense has done in the second half of the season. 17 points against Cleveland. 17 points against New Orleans. Most of that coming in the final two, uh, two minutes of that game. 7 against uh, San Francisco. 23 against Cincinnati. 19 against Arizona. And then this past week when they only played half the game, 17 against Atlanta. I don't think they can score. So that's your first opponent for the Cowboys. And then maybe more importantly, the rest of the NFC has just hurt. Like, I don't know what the status is going to be for J- uh, Jalen Hurts. Is he at 100% or is he somewhere closer to like 70? Apparently he's banged up this week. The coaches have even admitted as much. And when he, if he was closer to 100%, they wouldn't be saying that publicly. 
So I, I think that the Cowboys have the path that makes it possible because they're coming out of the NFC. The 49ers, you got to beat Brock Purdy. And while I trust that team overall, it's Brock Pur- Purdy still. The guy was a seventh round pick for a reason. And losing to Seattle this week. So I, I would go with the I would go with the Cowboys. That would be my team. These odds that I saw yesterday had them at ten to one over on the FanDuel Sportsbook. You can get them at thirteen to one. I think that would be my team that I would be placing the hundred dollar bet I, on. I almost did them, but I, I still I think, think I trust Eagles the Eagles better. Yeah, yeah, because I saw Dallas struggle against Gardner Minshew in the Eagles totally offense. Fair. So with that being it's in a mind, long shot. Even a 70% of Jalen Hurts is still better than 100% of Garden Minshew. And if that's the case, I still think the Cowboys would struggle. But I can understand where you're coming from from that, that side of things. And that's why I almost took the Eagles because like, I just feel like their path is so easy. But I like the Bengals' odds better because I've seen them, one, do this before where they come in as a, a lower seed and go on the road and be able to win and get to a Super Bowl. So do you I think trust there's them. five teams then that can win the Super Bowl? Because that's kind of where I'm at. I, I think four. Pushing it. Cincinnati, Buffalo, KC. Philly and Philly, San Francisco. Yeah, See, I think I, San Francisco can win it. I don't put San Francisco in there because I it's per- Brock. So Curry. you only think there's one team that can win it out of the NFC? Yeah, there's and only I, one team I, that can. I get think out. it's Philadelphia. I, now, I, could I see where someone else gets out of the NFC? Yes, but I don't think they could win the Super Bowl. And that's an area, though. It's a one-game playoff. I, and, and I think yeah, Brock I, Purdy I think, could win it if you're in that spot. It's defense and it's weapons, and Brock Purdy's just got to be. Brock Purdy. I, I I view it though as like I look at those teams that could come out of the NFC. Say if I saw Dallas winning, I don't think they would beat Buffalo, Kansas City, or Cincinnati. I I learned my lesson by doing that with the Eagles when Nick Foles was playing at quarterback. I said, "There's no chance. There's no chance that they're able to beat this Patriots team." And then we all know what happened. The Philly special took place alongside Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson. I'm Brandon Kylie. Coming up in about 15 minutes or so, we're getting into questions and answers. 314-399-9646 is the air comfort service text line. But next Jonathan Mayo, he covers the draft in minor league baseball for MLB.com and MLB pipeline. Want to get his thoughts on the Cardinals prospects that could help the team in 2023. Jonathan Mayo next year on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Ferrario and Tanner Hendricks and I'm Brandon Kylie. We're going out to the Brown and Crouppen celebrity line to be joined by Jonathan Mayo. You can find his work over at MLB.com where he covers the draft and minor league baseball for MLB.com and MLB pipeline. You can also follow him on Twitter at Jonathan Mayo. And if you do, you saw the announcement the other day where he is now the author of the new book, smart, wrong and lucky scouting baseball's unexpected stars. You can pre-order that now on Amazon or wherever books are sold. First of all, Jonathan, congratulations on the book. Looking forward to reading that. Thank you so much today for joining us. How you doing, my man? I'm doing great. Thank you for uh, for that not so uh, shameless plug. <laughs> Absolutely <laughs> happy to do so. I want to ask you at the end of this interview. You've got a chapter in there on Albert Pools, so I want to get a thought on that from you. But yesterday, I was reading uh, one of your pieces over on MLB.com on the most underrated, overrated prospects, guys that are, that are the best defensive prospects, all of those different things. There were a couple of Cardinals that were listed in there. And when I got to the overrated part of it, Jonathan, uh, there were a couple of uh, scouts that appeared to be a little lower on Matthew Liberator and Mason Wynn than some of the national analysts have been. What can you tell us on maybe the, the high upside and the, the lower scouts? What are they saying about those two players in particular? Yeah, I mean, and keep in mind that I, I cast a, a really, really wide net, uh, and and you never know who's going to respond out of the hundreds of things I've sent to. So it's it's a matter of 
uh, you know, a small sample size. So I, I wouldn't put too much stock in, in, weight into that. Um, I think with someone like Matthew Libertor, who uh, I've liked and known for a long time, guys like that, as young as he is, they're still a little prospect fatigue just because it seems like we've been writing and talking about him as a prospect for a really long time. But at the same time, he, in my opinion, got kind of rushed to the big leagues. Um, sometimes, listen, when there's a need, you, you kind of have to. Um, he was forced to kind of figure things out at the upper levels in a hurry. So it's this weird situation where he's been in the big leagues. Um, he's had success in AAA, but he's also struggled in AAA. So he's kind of caught in between. I think he's going to figure it out. Uh, and as for Mason Wynn, you know, I think the one concern with him is the, the impact that the bat is going to have. Um, we've all seen the arm. It's absolutely ridiculous. Um, I think he, he's going to play a, a very good shortstop when all is said and done. And listen, even if you had to move, um, I don't know where you would move him because moving the second would be a waste of you know, maybe the best infield arm in, in all of, of minor league, if not all of professional baseball. Uh, with all due respect to O'Neill Cruz, um, you know, uh, I think he's going to hit enough. He understands his job. I got to, to talk with him uh, a bit in the Arizona Fall League. I like what I saw, and uh, I think he knows that his job is going to be to get on base. Uh, you just need to make sure that he's not, you know, going to uh, be overmatched against big league pitching, have the bat knocked out of his hands proverbially. You know, he doesn't have to hit a lot of homers. But he can't just you know beat the ball into the ground and and let his legs do the tongue. And I don't think that's what he's going to be. Jonathan, in terms of as a major leaguer, what do you think best case scenario is for Mason Wynn? I mean, I I think he's an everyday shortstop. Now, is he an everyday shortstop that hits in the one or two hole? That's the ceiling. Is he a shortstop that hits in the eight or nine hole? Maybe. Um, you know, but I I I think because he understands you know that he needs to get on base. He's got pretty good bat control. He can, you know, hit the ball to all fields. Uh, I think there is some pop in there. Like I, I think that he has a chance to come close to to, to reaching that ceiling. And we'll see what he does, you know, this year in the upper levels of the minors. But you know, the Arizona Fall League gets a very small sample size. But I just like how he went about it, regardless of what numbers he did or didn't put up. I, I, I thought he had a lot of really good professional at bats, and I think it, that's going to play at the big league level. You know, I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't be upset if they decide to, to let him pitch, you know, and turn him into a two-way guy because that would be just fun. But I do think that he has the ability to be an everyday position player. Jonathan Mayo is our guest. You can find his work over at MLB.com where he covers the draft in minor league baseball. Uh, Jonathan, another Cardinal that was down in the Arizona Fall League and acquitted himself quite well was Jordan Walker. Cardinals fans, as you can expect, are very excited about what he could be for them as soon as this upcoming season what have you seen from Jordan Walker and his development thus far in his Cardinals minor league career? And what do you think it is realistic to expect out of him in this upcoming season? I, I mean, I, I agree with you. I think you're going to see him at, at some point uh, in 2023. So it's just going to be a question of when uh, and, you know, how soon. Uh, and some of that, I think, is going to depend on the makeup of the big league roster and who's doing what, you know, in the big leagues, he's, I don't want to say limited because it's, it's unfair, but he is a corner outfielder. Uh, his days of being a third baseman are done. Not that the Cardinals need hmm. a third baseman, obviously. Um, 
I, I think that's where there's some diverging opinions. Some people sort of see him, you know, that he's going to slow down and maybe he's a left fielder only. Um, I, I don't really care um, about that because he's just going to hit. You know, he, he's so young. Um, he has such a good approach. I, I think, you know, in that, uh, in that polling, I, I was actually a little surprised that he w- got the most votes for most usable power over Francisco Alvarez of the Mets. Um, and I think that speaks to what scouts think his, his field of hit is. And, you know, usable power isn't just how strong you are or how much bat speed you have or what kind of show you put on in batting practice. It's are you going to get to that raw power in games? And there is a lot of confidence that he's going to be able to do that, uh, you know, once he gets to the, to the big leagues. I, I think the way he carries himself and the way he hits and the way he goes about uh, his craft you forget that he's only 20 years old. Uh, you know, so uh, he turns 21, you know, near the end of May. So I, I don't think it would be a bad thing to have him start the year in AAA, but I think he's going to start knocking on that door pretty quickly, uh, you know, after the, that fall league experience, and he will take those lessons with him. And he had, you know, had a very good fall league, and I think he's going to kind of set the world on fire a little bit offensively, and they're going to have to find a place for his, his bat in the lineup. Jonathan, on the pitching side of things, you had a couple of different Cardinals in a couple of different articles. Gordon Graceffo in uh, one of the prospects that has the best pitch ability, and then Tink Hens, one of the top underrated pitchers uh, among prospects. What can you speak to in terms of just the, the depth and prospect pool for this Cardinals pitching staff? Yeah, I mean, there's always depth, and I think you know, the Cardinals, uh, and uh, you'll see the, the last... Uh, the last part of this uh, of this project will be up tomorrow, sort of looking at farm systems, and they do get credit for how they develop arms and 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 find and they find arms. Um, you know, I think Henson Graceffo are kind of almost at opposite ends of a, of a spectrum. Uh, I mean, I, I, Graceffo sort of fits the mold of the quote unquote typical Cardinals guy. You know, just really good pitchability, which means he just has a, a really good feel for what he's doing on the mound and has plenty of good stuff. We're talking about a guy with three, at least above average pitches, you know, uh, and the ability to control it. Hence has a ton of upside. Um, it just, you know, I don't know what he is exactly, right? He's not the biggest guy in the world. They were very careful in how they used him. Even in the fall league, it was like a unicorn sighting when he pitched because it was, you know, He'd come in, he'd, he'd, you know, he'd only throw an inning, and he was really, really good. So it often it was like seven pitches, and he was done. And he'd be like, wait, what? Like, I don't know what I just saw. Uh, so he's going to need to – I think he will need, and the Cardinals are going to have to kind of uh, take off the kid gloves a little bit. He's super young, so I get it. Um, they're going to have to let him you know, get stretched out and sort of see if he can handle the workload of a starting pitcher. Now, there's nothing wrong with if he ends up being, say, a multi-inning reliever or even a closer, um, you know, but that sort of impacts his, his, his stock as a, as a prospect accordingly. Uh, you know, he has the stuff and the ability to throw strikes to be a starter. We just haven't seen it over the course of, say, 100 innings uh, or five, six innings at a time in, in one start to know exactly what he is. But, you know, ceiling-wise – He's probably, you know, you put him ahead of Graceffo. In terms of floor, meaning like who is the safer bet to be a big league starter, you might have to take Graceffo, but it's a good problem to have. 
my final question that I've got for Jonathan Mayo of MLB.com. Can you explain Alec Burleson to me? I, I don't think I can remember a Cardinals top 100 prospect that got less buzz who reached the big leagues as quickly as Burleson did than Burleson. Can you can you explain to me what you think the Cardinals have in him? Yeah, I mean, I think he's a guy. He, can, he is like every bit the sort of, to me, quintessential Cardinals, you know, not that he was a like a late pick, you know, it was almost too early compared to some of the other guys who have come up who impacts the big leagues, you know, uh, who ends up being maybe even better than uh, where he's ranked. Although, you know, we, we ended up sort of, you know, bumping him up pretty high after the, after this year that he had, um, you know, I, he, I think he's going to hit, uh, he's going to show, you know, some uh, maybe average power. Um, you know, I feel like every year there are guys in the card system who come up and you're like, this guy is much better than I thought he was going to be like, he's not the same kind of player as Tommy Edmond, but it sort of fits that, like, you know, what, what's the mold I, you know, and the thing with Burleson is like, I'm not like, he's probably, you know, he's a corner outfielder. He's okay. But I think he's going to hit enough that the, he'll be okay enough to find a way into the lineup. Even if you're putting him in left one day, DHing him one day, putting him in right one day, you know, that, that kind of thing, moving him around. It's a little crowded in that outfield. So I'm not exactly sure how it works. Maybe he's a fourth outfielder, but a really good one, um, which, you know, makes it sound like uh, I'm, I'm diminishing what he is. But uh, teams that win championships have guys like that on their roster. No, I mean, the Cardinals would love to have a quality fourth outfielder. It's something that they've been looking for for years. So if that's what he becomes, I mean, that's that's a win, all things considered, to have a cost-controlled guy like that that hits from the left side. Hey, Jonathan, we appreciate the time, as always. Final thing before we get you out of here. Uh, once again, his book is, it's a new one, Smart, Wrong, and Lucky, The Origin Stories of Baseball's Unexpected Stars. Uh, my producer told me that you have a chapter on Albert Pujols uh, in this book. Can you tease one of the, your favorite stories, one of the favorite things that you learned about Albert Pujols while researching for this book? I, I think, uh, you know, the, probably the best story that I, I, I was told by his American Legion coach is uh, one of the few times he ever got in trouble. Um, he was 17. He still was learning English. And uh, he played shortstop for his American Legion team and kind of was a coach on the field and got into an argument with uh, his outfielder about positioning. And they, like, got into, like, almost a fight on the field, and the coach benched both of them. Meanwhile, Pujols, Albert's cousin, was on the team and kind of acted as translator, and he and Albert were arguing back and forth uh, uh, about it. And finally, the, the coach who was driving them said, all right, Albert, you know, his English was good enough. What are you guys arguing about? And Albert said, well, my cousin said I'm the best player on the team, and you shouldn't have benched me. And the coach asked Albert, well, what do you think? And he said, I shouldn't argue with a teammate like that on the field. You should have benched me. And I think that kind of tells you all you need to know about Albert Pujols and his makeup. And the whole book is telling stories about guys like Albert Pujols who were kind of undervalued. Everyone knows the story about him getting drafted so late. Um, I couldn't have this book without Albert Pujols in it. And he kind of fits uh, fits. The, the, the storyline that I was going for to a T. That's awesome. Well, looking forward to, to getting that on my own and uh, people can find that over on your Twitter account if they want more information at Jonathan Mayo. Jonathan, appreciate the time as always, man. Enjoy. The, congratulations on this book and we'll talk with you again soon. 
Sounds good. Thanks for having me. You got it. That's Jonathan Mayo of MLB.com. You can find his work there. He covers the draft and minor league baseball for MLB Pipeline. I think what he said about Mason Wynn is exactly why so many Cardinals fans are conflicted about A, Mason Wynn the player, and B, the way that the Cardinals have approached the offseason over the last couple of years. Said, could he be a leadoff hitter that ends up being a plus defender for you at shortstop? 100%. That is the ceiling for a guy like a Mason Wynn. Could he also be a player that hits eighth or ninth for you in your lineup and is just a pretty good defensive player, kind of Tommy Edmond-ish with maybe a little bit more speed? Yeah, that is also in play for Mason Wynn. And I think that's why it's so hard to project what he's going to be for the Cardinals. And it's so hard to decide, did the Cardinals make a mistake potentially by just sitting out on these shortstops? Because we just don't know. We don't don't know what he's going to be. If the Cardinals end up being right on him and he is that leadoff guy type of player, well, then, yeah, you, you absolutely should have waited out on this. If they're wrong, though, and he's a bottom-of-the-order hitter who's maybe more of a utility infielder or just a, a defensive shortstop like a Jose Iglesias type, well, then, yeah, you're, you're going to feel pretty crappy about the fact that you stuck out on some all-time great shortstops to potentially have this kid in, out, out there. And if he doesn't, if he falls into that category, what's your next answer at the shortstop position and that's going to be the bigger concern because you've already spent like 10 years trying to figure out the shortstop position maybe you figured it out for a couple with Tommy Edmond but if Mason Wynn doesn't pan out to what you expected him to be you might be in for another long haul trying to figure out the shortstop position I think it then becomes that you've got to re-sign Tommy Edmond like it might be expensive too maybe but if if he continues this that's that's the cost of doing business if you end up being wrong on something right I mean if you end up uh, being wrong on some of these outfielders and you and Tyler O'Neill, for example, has a great season this year. They might be forced into either re-signing Tyler O'Neill or going out to the market and finding somebody new that will give you production. And that's expensive. So if you end up being wrong on the internal development, that's when you have to pay. It's the same thing in every sport. The NHL. If the Blues end up being wrong on some of their internal guys, if they, if they don't get the contributions from Jake Neighbors or a Bull Duke or uh, Logan Brown, these guys that they thought could contribute on a top nine level, then you got to go to the market. And those guys that can play in the top nine minutes, and you're looking Brandon Sod money at, at a minimum. So you're getting four plus million dollars. Same thing is true in Major League Baseball as well. Coming up in about 15 minutes or so, does the Blues' recent success make it more likely or less likely that they're going to trade their pending free agents? We'll talk about that coming up at the top of the hour. Questions and answers coming up next. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. You've got questions. We may have the answers. Maybe it's BK and Ferrario's questions and answers on 101 ESPN. Brought to you by James Carlton with State Farm. Have drivers under 25 on your insurance? Save hundreds of dollars a year with CarltonInsurance.net. Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kylie. The Air Comfort Service text line is 314-399-9646. Let's get to this from the 314. I like this question because I think it's always good to bring the audience in on what Alex's day looks like, especially on game days. Alex, what does the time after the show ends and before the pregame begins look like for you on a game day? Let me start with this. I do not envy Alex Ferrario on those days. I did the job for, I think, five days. <laughs> yeah. 
and you were sick on top of it. Felt like I was going to die. (laughs) Like, the next Monday I came into the show, I said, never again. You texted me when we were in the hospital for that first pregame because you lost your voice and you said, this is awful. Yeah. I was with BK as the producer at the time for Blues. Yeah, he, brought blues. In like, he brought in like a full like. <laughs> I was not deathly ill, but I had a really bad cold. Yeah. And so like my throat was sore. I could barely get my voice to work for the full show, much less for a pregame show as well. So that's, that's that added a little bit to it. But like the the hours are are crazy, man. Alex typically gets here at like right around 10 o'clock for our show to before to, to prep before. And then we all do a little bit afterwards. But Alex, what does that time look like for you between two o'clock when the show ends and typically like six o'clock when the pregame begins? Yeah, so so I'll, I'll do like a quick synopsis of it and I'll just do it as a home game. So this season, I, I have a producer that's kind of helping. That's Grant Francis. Last year, it was mostly me that was putting it all together. Um, but usually it's it's kind of prep between two and four o'clock in terms of what I'm going to have on the pregame, uh, kind of figuring out on, on uh, topics that we're going to get into cutting up audio maybe recording an interview like yesterday i recorded with drew banister for pregame at two o'clock because that one he was available so usually from two to three two to three thirty it's kind of show prep here i get my car i drive downtown because there's just not enough time to go home so i go downtown i park in the garage i eat lunch slash dinner in my car um, and then I go inside, and then that's just more kind of show prep of putting together the line combinations, putting together some notes, making sure all the audio's up to date, and then kind of chatting with Grant and Joe to make sure we got all the topics together. And that walks you up until pregame at six, and then you do pregame. Puck drops at seven. I usually sit in the booth next to Curbs and Joey and watch the game and listen to them, do the intermissions, and then post game is me and Joe up until I think last night we ended about. 10.30, and then in the car, drive home, and back home by like 11.15. And, and then by home. Goes to sleep. No. Not at all. Unfortunately, that's the bad part about doing pre and post. You have so much energy that it takes like an hour to unwind. So, gets home, so sits like down, plays midnight. video games, goes to sleep. Yeah, pretty much. And then gets up in the morning, does it all over again. Yep. So, that's, that's hockey season for Alex Ferrari. While dealing with two little ones. Yeah. <laughs> No big deal. From the uh, 3-1-4, guys, would you re-sign Ivan Barbashev to a longer-term deal if it meant a lower average annual value? Maybe something like the Nick Paul deal, where you go like six or seven years, two and a half million dollars per year. I would not. I I actually, I would. That's actually a really interesting idea. I don't think he would. Because, like, I think you'd want to break, break the bank right now if you're Ivan Barbashev as much as possible. Capitalize off of last season, and somebody's going to want you for something, uh, especially with your playoff performances. If I could get him on a six-year deal for $2.5 million, I would do that in a heartbeat. I mean, he's going to be 33 at the end of that contract. You know the way he plays. He stays fairly healthy throughout his career. And he's one of those guys that if an injury pops up, you put him in your top nine, but you could also play him on your fourth line. So I would do that deal if he'd be take, uh, willing to take it. It's an interesting idea. I, I still don't think I would do it just because he's one of those guys that Ivan Barbershop, like you said, you know what you're getting from him. And he plays kind of that third line role for you. you can be in your top nine or you, if you're really deep team, could be a great fourth line or overqualified fourth liner for you. I just don't know if I'd go with like a player like that six years. And and that's the biggest thing for me. And especially on a team that's got 
long-term contracts already on the books with most of the defensemen having all these long-term deals. You've got Shen and Thomas and Kyron long-term deals. I, it's more the length that would scare me away, not the AAV on that. I would just rather have Nolachari. If I'm going to spend $2.5 million next year on one of the forwards that I'm bringing back, I would rather have Nolachari than I have a man to pay $4 million and have both of those guys. I mean, that's pretty impactful. If you get him for one and a half mil, I don't think I need both of them. I think you do if you're not able to sign a guy who can play in your top six because those guys are going to cost you a lot of money. Yeah, and- I would just rather go out and do that. I would I would rather trade one of my defensemen if I can. If yeah. I can remove some of that salary that, from the That's the, the key there. If you can move one of them, then I would definitely. But if you can't, this might be your best option if you're stuck with all of those contracts for another I think year. I would even rather go with a young guy. Like I would rather give Jake Neighbors those minutes. Yeah. And the reason why is just to clear the books. That way I've got more opportunity to be able to go out there and yeah. spend that money elsewhere. This is not a shot against Ivan Barbashev. If he was willing to take a shorter term deal, maybe then we could talk. Like if he's willing to take a four year deal worth $10 million total, two and a half per year. Sure. Now we can talk about it. But six years, there's a lot of risk on the back end of that with a guy that plays as physically as Ivan well, Barbashev. And also does. Nick Paul has a more consistent track record of being a little For bit sure. more goals per season. So I think that Nick Paul deal is going to be a steal for Tampa moving forward. In 15 minutes, we're playing a game of more likely to happen. You give us two scenarios. We will tell you which one's more likely. The Air Comfort Service tax line, once again, is 314-399-9646 to get involved. But coming up next, speaking of the Blues, speaking of Ivan Barbashev, does their recent success and their continued success make it more likely they end up trading their pending UFA or does it make it less likely and they end up just building around those guys as we get to the trade deadline? We'll talk about it next year on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. success mean for their pending free agents alongside Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson. I'm Brandon Kylie. Alex, I think this is one of the big questions that remains uh, in play for the blues as they continue winning the way that they have. They are now 10, four and three in their last 18 games. If you're looking at, okay, what does that mean relative to the rest of the league? It's the seventh best points percentage in the league over this stretch dating back to December 6th. It is the second best record in the Western conference in the past 17 games, again, dating back to December 6th. They're playing good hockey right now. There's just really no other way to look at it. Can I throw one more cool stat in there? Please do. January 1st, which I know is a short sample size, but since the beginning of the new year, Blues have the best power play in the National Hockey League. Yeah, in this stretch, they're, they're ninth, dating back to December 6th, ninth on the power play, and this is maybe even more impressive, Alex, after what they had in their struggles early on this season on the PK, 12th. On the PK over their last 17 games, uh, you, you've really Top improved. Top half of the league in both categories. And some significant areas, especially on the special teams. Now, with all of that as the backdrop, you are without Ryan O'Reilly. You are without Vladimir Tarasenko. You are without Tori Krug. You're without Marco Scandella, as you have been all season. But now you're also without Robert Bortuzzo. You're severely undermanned while you are winning <laughs> the way that they have been lately. Alex, in your mind... Does their success without those guys and their success just in general lately, they continue this and they end up close to or maybe even in a playoff spot by the time we get to uh, to the trade deadline. Does that make it more likely that they end up trading guys like Barbie and Mikola and O'Reilly and Tarasenko? 
Or does that make it less likely? And is the answer the same for all four guys? I don't think the answer is the same for the four guys. I think the answer is more likely for your top guys in O'Reilly and Tarasenko and less likely for Barbashev and Mikola. Because if they have success in this stretch, if I'm Doug Armstrong, I'm looking at this team saying, so they're winning without the two guys that we thought were most impactful on the ice. But yet when we have thrusted these guys into positions that they were playing in, you know, you're getting sod on the power play more. You're getting Jake Neighbors on the power play more. You're playing the penalty kill more with Brandon Sod and Pavel Buchnevich and Ivan Barbashev, and they're having success. I'm going to try and find a way to keep those guys and keep this and build it, build onto it in the offseason. And that's where the O'Reilly and Tarasenko's come into play, where I look at it and say, we're winning without them. These guys are a commodity at the trade deadline for a team that wants to win, I'm still going to find a way to move this. I think all of this comes into play, though, to where you look at it and you say, what's what's the offers we're getting for these players? Because if teams call you and say, we'll give you a third-round pick for Vladimir Tarasenko, what's more beneficial for you? If you're in a playoff spot, getting a third-round pick, which isn't going to do much for you in the offseason, or just keeping them on your roster and figuring out a way to make it work, I would argue just keep the guy. But if teams are still willing to send you a first-round pick for Vladdy and send you a really good prospect in return for O'Reilly, I don't care that I'm sitting in third place in the Central Division and feel like I'm trending in the right direction. Let's make this trade because this competitive team has more experience under their belt. Now let's make the team even better in the offseason with all of these assets I've acquired at the deadline. I, I, I think it becomes to the point where Ryan O'Reilly and Tarasenko are probably still guys that are going to be dealt. I, I think Barbie Meekla, if they're in it and... They still have a sense of, you know, I can squint. Army says, I can squint and I can see us going on a run. Maybe he holds on to Barbie and Mikla because we heard, uh, I think it was Elliot Freeman on the 32 Thoughts podcast say, those are kind of guys that every team needs if they're going to go on he a run. He just wrote it today on his 32 Thoughts written article saying that a top executive in the National Hockey League said, keep an eye on Ivan Barbashev. So, and maybe they end up, maybe it is one of those kind of where you're saying where maybe it's, you know, it is too good to pass up. Maybe we get a second round pick for Barbie. We need to move him and say it's Boston that's calling. Then I would understand. But I could also see the perspective of, if we can get first round picks and you know what, in the offseason, one of my goals is to retool our defense. What am I going to need to do to, what am I going to need to have if we're going to do that? Is probably some extra first round picks so I could potentially ship out one of these big contracts. So I think it comes down to how much of this do you, how much work do you think needs to be done in the offseason? And also, can this team go on a deep run to where it's worth holding on to these pieces? Because you have some of the best trade pieces on the trade board in terms of O'Reilly and Tarasenko. I think we're all in agreement. It's hard to imagine this team going on a deep playoff run. So I think you look to still sell O'Reilly. I think you still look to sell Vladdy. Barbie, I'm on the fence about. Maybe you decide to keep him, but I think if you get a really good offer, second-round pick, you move him. Mikla, maybe you decide to keep him because depth reasons for at least till the end of the year, and if you lose him in free agency, so be it. So I think it's case-by-case basis, but I still think O'Reilly and Tarasenko, even with the way the team is playing, are guys they are still going to look to potentially move at the deadline. Here's what would be bad for the team, BK. You give these guys the opportunity, and they're having success with it. I mean, look around what you've got. First, Kairu Thomas and Buchnevich, and then you've got Saad and Shen, and now you've got neighbors having success, and Alexei Torepchenko and Nikita Alexandrov. You're giving these guys the opportunity. You're giving them the experience to find out if they're ready to be everyday NHL players. And then you take that away when these guys come back, and you know that they're not going to be back after this season. And then these guys are put back into the minors or put back in the fourth-line role, and they're not having success. Well, now you're not building off of what you just were for six weeks when these guys were injured. I would much rather, if I'm getting good return in a trade, give these guys the opportunity to know, 
do I need to spend money in the offseason? Or can I be competitive with these guys and only make a tweak in one area? Yeah, I think this is exclusively about what you're getting in return. Like, if you are getting a third, fourth round pick, something like that, and I would be pretty shocked if that ended up being the case. But if, for whatever reason, that ended up being the offers for Vladdy or O'Reilly, yeah, sure, go ahead and keep them. Because you might as well give it one more shot with this group of players if that's all that's being offered in return to you. Those picks just, let's be honest, aren't all that valuable going into this offseason for this team, given what they have available to them. So in that scenario, yeah, go ahead and keep the guys. But the likelihood is you're going to get at least a first round pick for Vladimir Tarasenko and Ryan O'Reilly, one of for each of them, if they're healthy going into the trade deadline. I see almost no scenario in which I'm not taking that if I'm the St. Louis Blues. And that includes if they go on a crazy run between now and then. And I know for some Blues fans, I got pushed back last night when I said this. I know some Blues fans say, sit there and say, well, BK, if they're going on a run without those guys, imagine when they put them back in there, could this end up being a Stanley Cup contender? I've seen what this team looks like with O'Reilly. I've seen what this team looks like with Vladimir Tarasenko. In my opinion, it is not a cup contender. Can they compete for the playoffs? Can they get in? A hundred percent. And they deserve credit for doing so because they have salvaged a season that, frankly, I didn't think was salvageable. So maybe they proved me wrong again. But when you have first round picks that are being offered for you, as you mentioned, Tanner, what that does for you in the offseason is it opens up every possibility. You can now potentially attach that pick with Tory Krug, send him elsewhere. As we're seeing right now, you can win without Tory Krug in your lineup, and your power play without him can be top 10 in the NHL, which I didn't think was possible without him on this power play right now. You can go out there and attach him, that first-round pick to somebody else that you think is a bad contract. Hell, you could attach that first-round pick, maybe both of them, with a prospect, and go get yourself Jacob Chikrin at the trade deadline if you wanted to do something like that. Like, there are... There are moves that this team could make if you trade O'Reilly and Tarasenko that open up what the next five years are going to be for them. So I I think that it's just it's too important for this team's long term outlook to make those kinds of deals. Barbie and Mikola are very different to me. If you're winning with those guys playing the way that they have been and Barbie's been up and down, but especially Mikola, who's a top four defenseman for you right now, and you could get like a third round pick in return for him again. I wouldn't trade him at that point in time either. Just keep him, see what it looks like the rest of the year. He's proven to you that he can play top four minutes, even if it's not great, and then move on from him in the offseason whenever somebody else is willing to pay him more money. But that's the way I look at it. I think it's almost the two pairings. O'Reilly, Tarasenko, I'd be hard-pressed not to trade them. With Mikola and Barbie, it really just depends on what the return is. And I'd be pretty surprised if you're getting a first round pick. So if you're competing at a high level and you've got a chance to be able to go on a run to the playoffs, then I would probably keep those two guys. And And I I know that's crazy for me to say being the guy that's been trying to trade Barbie for two years. Uh, I, and tell me if you guys disagree with this or not, but in my opinion, if you decide, you know, we're going to keep O'Reilly and Tarasenko, you almost have to become buyers at the deadline because then it's basically, we're doing like a final run in terms of the reason we're, the reason we're keeping them is because we think we can go on a run to win the Stanley cup. And, And when I say you become buyers, the only spot I can imagine them doing that would be defense. But I look at the defense and the contracts that you oh, have. So you're not buying and the it's, defense. It's hard to reshape the defensive core, though, right now in season. And that's why, to me, it just doesn't make sense. If you're, doing, if you're a buyer at the deadline, it's got to be a hockey trade. Mm-hmm. Like that, That's the only way that I could see this team really making the moves and, that you're talking about, Tanner. And, and that, that ends up like 
you're shipping something out that's helping you right now to bring something in that you think can help you more. And that, well, it's cap in doesn't and, seem likely. It's cap in and cap out, but you're also going to lean in, and we can get into this a little bit later, but you're going to lean into the reason that you're winning hockey games. And it's not because of your defense. It's not because of your, well, your goaltending. Yes, it's because of your offense. Like you won that game last night because of your offense. If you're going to buy, you're going to lean into your best asset, and it's let's add to this offense, of course, so we have three dominant lines. I mean, look at where they're at right now. In their last 17 games, when you're 10-4-3, and three, you're ninth in the NHL in goals per game at 3.6. That's third best in the Western Conference. You're also 20th in the NHL in goals allowed per game at 3.2. That is 10th in the Western Conference in this stretch. You're not, Your defense has not been good. You're not fixing this defense by a trade deadline. You're fixing this defense in an offseason. You might use that first-round pick that you get for Vladdy and or O'Reilly to help you fix in the offseason. And see, yeah. that's what worries me about being a buyer, is to be a buyer, like, who are you talking about? You're talking well, about, like, a... Brock Besser from Vancouver or something like that, you're giving up a first-round pick. And that's what I was going to say. Is To me, it doesn't make sense to be a buyer. But again, I'm just saying, like if you're going to say we're keeping O'Reilly and Tarasenko, in my mind, you almost have to be a buyer. I, I think teams I make a mistake saying. when they say yeah. we're either staying put or we're doing buying and selling. Mm-hmm. I, I think that's a mistake. I think you either have to commit one or the yeah, other. I mean, that's my biggest fear this season. My biggest fear is this team's in a playoff spot, and Doug Armstrong says we're going to keep these guys. And you miss out on an opportunity to have three first-round draft picks. And let's say you do get into the playoffs and keep O'Reilly and Tarasenko. That first-round pick, if you get bounced in the first round, is probably 17th or 18th overall, and you just drafted Jimmy Snuggerud in that spot. So you could have that. Then you could have a pick that's in the twenty high 20s, and then you could have a pick that's in the mid-20s. I mean, that's three picks right there that you could turn into either a higher pick or you can trade pieces away to reshape areas that are your deficient in. It just makes it possible for you to be able to retool immediately. Mm-hmm. Getting those picks at the deadline opens everything up for Doug Armstrong. And if you trust Doug Armstrong, this is exactly the kind of move that he's got to be able to make. I know it is cold-blooded, man. I know. Because if this team continues to go on a run, they will have played really high-level hockey for, at that point, almost four months. That's a lot. That's a lot of high-level play for them to get back into this thing. And then for you to then trade Vladdy and um, O'Reilly right as they're coming back from injury... There will be some people in that locker room that I would have to imagine are furious about that decision. And guess what? Them's the breaks. Like That's how it goes. It, we, it, Doug Armstrong is not just playing for the here and now. He also has to have the long-term outlook of the team in mind. Baruby, if it was Baruby's decision, maybe those guys aren't moving. But it's it, Baruby needs to be coaching for the now. Army has to be paying attention to the now and yep. the next two to three years. And that's why I think it's beneficial to let these guys that are having success keep having success in the roles they're playing. In 15 minutes, the Red Sox might become the logical answer for a Paul DeYoung landing spot. We'll explain why coming up in about 15 minutes. More likely to happen is next year on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. What's more likely to happen? They'll figure it out. BK and Ferrario's most likely to happen. The Air Comfort Service text line is 314-399-9646. So MOB Network just tweeted this out. We're playing a game of more likely to happen here on 101 ESPN. MLB Network is going through their list of the top 10 players at each respective position. It's They've always got analysts well that goes Cardinals. through it. Um, we'll get into their, their top 10 relievers coming up in the 1 o'clock hour. Ryan Helsley did make that list. Tomorrow's list is, or tonight's list rather, 
is the top 10 right fielders in Major League Baseball. And of course, your top three is kind of as expected. It's Aaron Judge, Bryce Harper, Mookie Betts. This is according to the fans. This is their vote. Other right fielders include Ronald Acuna Jr., Kyle Tucker, for the purposes of this, uh, Fernando Tatis Jr. was on this, Starling Marte, Nick Castellanos, Adolis Garcia. (laughs) How could you put Tatis Jr. on there? He's never played that position, and he's only projected to play halfway through this season there. You know, it's Fernando Tatis Jr. People are excited These lists are stupid. Fans are very excited to watch him in right field. Fans are also apparently very excited to watch Lars Newtbar play in right field. They voted him as the fourth best right oh fielder in God. Major League Baseball ahead of ahead of Ronald Acuna Jr. and Kyle Tucker. Here's a more likely to happen for you. If this is the case, let's start voting Callie oh. Rosen into the NHL All-Star game. Dude, yeah. it, in all seriousness, if Lars Newtbar ends up being a better player this year than Acuna Jr. and Kyle Tucker and those guys live up to their expectations then the Cardinals will have the best offense in baseball. Cardinals will win the World Series if that's the case. They, they'll be considered one of the favorites because in that scenario, you have a superstar that is now hitting probably first or second in front of Goldie, Arenado, and Contreras. I mean, that's that's the guy that we've been talking about. And he's a left-handed bat, and he's cost-controlled. Like, if you have that dude and Jordan Walker, and then if one of these other guys ends up O'Neal. working out, like... Phew, Good luck. Okay, you, but anyways. You said that fans voted on this? Yeah. This is the equivalent of, remember the uh, little poke holes in the all-star ballots at, at uh, Bush Stadium? <laughs> That's the equivalent of me sitting there as a nine-year-old and picking all of the Cardinals. More likely to happen. Lars Newtbar is a top five right fielder in Major League Baseball this year, or Lars Newtbar is not starting for the Cardinals by the time that the uh, the playoffs begin. Oh, I'll say it's more likely he's a top five right fielder. In baseball, you're in the National League. In baseball. That's that's what this is. This is for Major League Baseball. So he is God, that's absurd. ahead of at least one of Judge, Harper, Betts, Acuna, Tucker. He has to be better than at least one of those guys to finish as a top five right fielder in Major League Baseball this year. I can't year. believe or I'm going to say that it. he's not starting for the Cardinals come playoff time. I'm going to say it's more likely he's better than one of those because... I don't see a scenario where he's not starting the outfield. Even if he stinks, I feel like they're going to keep going back to him because you got to have him have success. I'll say it's more likely that one. I don't believe either of these, but we'll go with that. Go on, Tanner. I, I Pissing the Cheerios. I can't. I see no scenario in which he's ahead of any of those guys to be top five. What if they're all injured? Even then, I take one of them over him. I and that's not shouting against Lars Newbar. I no, again, I've always is. said, I've oh, always okay. said, I think he's going to be the a guy solid who doesn't think Kyle Tucker. You is literally very good. just said you'd rather have five injured right fielders over Lars Newbar. I just can't see Lars Newbar develop. He may develop into a really good player, and I'm completely wrong on him. There's no scenario in which I see him becoming a superstar. I, I just don't doesn't see doesn't have it. to be because well, Kyle Tucker isn't a superstar. Yeah, it's, it's impossible to be a superstar, a superstar for you. Okay, <laughs> it's impossible to be a superstar um, in Tanner's eyes. I would say it's more likely he's not a starter because I could see where O'Neill can keep his job in left. Carlson will remain re, they'll remain high on him no matter what, and he'll be in center field. And then Walker ends up taking the job from Newpar. So I could see where Newpar's the solid fourth outfielder that we're talking about. And again, that, it's okay if he's an okay fourth outfielder. I just. I saw him in the first half of the year, and look, he was great in the second half. I don't think that's him. I, I don't think he's a guy that's going to – I think he walked 41 times, struck out 41 times. I don't think he's that guy. So I'm going to say definitely more likely he's not starting by the time we get to the playoffs. Even I'll even if, say that by the all-star break. Even if he is that guy, I'm not sure that that's good enough to be top five. <laughs> like this list, 
right field is stacked right now. You look across the league. There are superstars at that position. I, you guys know I'm high on, on Lars Newpar. I think he has a chance, like one of my bold predictions for the Cardinals this year, is that Lars Newpar has a chance to be an all-star in the National League. Even still, I think that it is more likely that he is not a starter for the Cardinals by the postseason than, he, than that he is a top five right fielder in Major League Baseball. These guys, like the worst of them, is 30% above league average offensively and, oh, by the way, is excellent defensively as well. If if Lars becomes that, wow. Card, do the Cardinals have something special? Somebody from the 314 says, guys, was this survey taken solely at Hot Shots in downtown St. Louis during penny pitchers? This is absolutely yes. insane. <laughs> hey, if this is how you feel, Blues uh, fan, uh, Cardinals fans, please vote Callie Rosen into the NHL All-Star Game. He deserves it. I know he's Fifth a most star. goals by a defenseman since, what is it, November 16th? Vote him in. Send Callie to Florida. Uh, all right, guys, more likely to happen for the St. Louis Blues. Robert Thomas finishes the year with 90 points or Jordan Cairo finishes the year with 40 goals. 90 points for Thomas, 40 goals for Cairo. Cairo, for what it's worth, is currently on pace for 39 goals this yeah. season. I'll That's say, amazing, dude. I'll, After his start. Well, and especially, yeah, for how inconsistent he was for a bit for a while. I, I, I'll say it's more likely that Cairo hits 40 goals. He's already at 20, and you're halfway through the season. Um, he's just the type of guy that can reel off three in a game in a heartbeat. And so if he gets behind the eight ball where he's 15 away and you got 40 or 30 games left, he could reel off three and one. So I, I think he ends with 40. I don't think Thomas gets to 90 points, but I think he inches pretty darn close to it. I think next year is the year that he surpasses 90 points and gets closer to that hundred mark. I would say more likely Kyra too, because he's on pace to be closer into that 40 goal range. And to Alex's point, I mean, when Kyra gets hot, I mean, he can, he's a guy that you could look at and has five goals in two games. So like, I think it's more likely him. I, I kind of agree. Thomas would be close, but just looking at his numbers, I mean, he's projected to be 12 points shy of that. It would take for a really good second half for him to get there. And it's possible he does. I, I, I mean, if Kyra does this, Thomas is probably going to do it, yeah, too. That's but I think Kyra, I think Kyra's goal scoring, I could see that one happening more likely than I can the points coming Here's why Thomas. I didn't pick Thomas, because I feel like when Vladdy comes back, they'll break that line up. Oh, they better not. I feel like they will, because you're going to oh. want to put Tarasenko and O'Reilly in really good positions. And they're going to have Kairou play with somebody and Thomas play with Vladdy so that you can get the goal production. Kairou will continue his pace, but Thomas dips a little bit if his line mates aren't the same. That would be a mistake. I, I can't even react to that. Uh, what is more likely? Mizzou makes it to the Elite Eight this year or Kentucky misses the tournament entirely? I'll go ahead and start on this. I think it is more likely that Kentucky misses the tournament entirely. So far this year, they have exactly zero quad one victories. Zero. They are now one in three in the SEC after losing to South Carolina last night at home. South Carolina is terrible this season. They lost to Vandy, who I said going into the Mizzou game, that is an absolute must win for Mizzou because of how bad. That wouldn't put them at 500. (laughs) Vandy is. Um, I... I think it's more likely that Kentucky misses the tournament entirely. They are very much at risk at this point of not being able to make it in. That team is just not what we thought it was going to be coming into the season. I'll say that with you. I think it's more likely that they miss out because they're watching them play in that game against Mizzou, man. You could just tell something was not right. John Calipari's job can't be 
He's got a lifetime guarantee. Yeah. Oh, does he really? That's what his contract is. Uh, a life, I was going to say, his, his job can't be under heat. I mean, if he ends up losing it, it would be by his own doing. He would say, I'm, I'm, I'm out. Away. Yeah, okay. So he's got the lifetime. I he'll didn't go, realize he'll that. He'll go to Texas. He'll go to Mizzou. Um, Assistant with Dennis Gates. What the hell? I would rather have Dennis Gates at this point. Than, well, no, I told you he'll be a Dennis's assistant. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good recruiter. That's what I'm saying. He can go into a sole recruiting job. I- I'll say it's more likely that it's Kentucky that misses out because I-, I look at that Mizzou team, and I've said this before, like they have the recipe of a team that can go on a run. They play with pace. They play an aggressive defensive style. And, man, when they get hot, it, it-, it reminds me of when, like, it- I know what this is going to sound like, but it reminds me of like, when announcers say, man, you're in, you're in the Steph Curry, like, uh, zone where they just get hot and it's like my god they're just piling on po- I remember watching I don't know game going they're making everything <laughs> literally it was Steph Curry uh, so I, that's I how say, they play I say it's more likely Kentucky I mean watching that team they've got uh, I'm drumbling on his name a sheep a sheep a sheep yeah. is that right Sheepway. one of the best players in college basketball great size but they've got no shooting around him and, and that's a massive miss for them and with no shooting it's hard to win in basketball so I'm that's saying what I've heard I know that's why I'm saying they're that's not gonna I've make heard. the tourney I mean, it's, you don't make baskets. You don't win in basketball. It's like surrounding LeBron James with a bunch of non-shooters. Oh, wait. Coming up in about 15 minutes or so, we're diving into the junk drawer. But next. Just are, casually bring up was LeBron. That, was that funny? I missed the I, joke. I, I get what he's doing, but he casually brought the up Lakers, LeBron. The Lakers. They, they, it's all. Jackson approves. I just saw him with a thumbs up. Coming up next. Are the Red Sox the most Thanks, logical Jackson. answer for Paul DeYoung? <laughs> Maybe. We'll talk about it next year on 101 ESPN. <laughs> We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. He's Alex Ferrario. That's Tanner Hendrickson and I'm Brandon Kiley. So the Red Sox have a... uh, Pretty significant problem on their hands. Xander Bogart signed a significant 11-year contract with the San Diego Padres. The Red Sox made their bet on Trevor Story last year, giving him a five-year contract to be their second baseman for the immediate present and then their shortstop of the future. Uh-oh. Trevor Story yesterday, it was announced that he had the equivalent of a Tommy John surgery. He's out for four to six months. It is a quicker recovery style of Tommy John to save the semantics of it. That's essentially what it was. He and he could end up missing the vast majority of the season. Uh, Heimblum was not willing to say if or when Story would be back this season. It is now uh, mid-January. Let's say it's a six-month timeline for him to be able to start his return you're talking about mid-July at that point in time. Maybe he's able to get back for the stretch run after some rehab games for the Red Sox. The likelihood is, though, they need a shortstop. They don't have anybody internally to be able to really fill that position. Now, Alex, it could be as simple as they say, you know what? The guy that I thought was going to be the Cardinals answer at the shortstop position, uh, we're just going to go out there and get like a Jose Iglesias. We'll sign him to a one-year deal, $8 million or whatever, and that'll be our internal replacement to be able to do that. It's possible, though, that they decide, you know what, our best answer for this as a higher upside than what Iglesias is going to be? Go trade for Paul DeYoung. It's not going to cost them much, just money, basically. I'm sure the Cardinals would be willing to take a very minimal return to get the 10 plus million dollars off of their books for this upcoming season. Alex, if the Red Sox called you about Paul DeYoung, let's start here and said, we'll give you essentially a player to be named later. 
So you're getting basically nothing back. Would you trade Paul DeYoung for the return of us having free uh, money opened up against the cap or against the payroll? Would I do it? Absolutely. Because I don't, I don't see the role for Paul DeYoung this season. And honestly, to me, it feels like it's just a, a roster spot that's clogging opportunities for other players. And I mean that no disrespect to Paul DeYoung, but when you got these young players that you're expecting contributions from, like Donovan and Gorman and Yepes and Burleson and Jordan Walker sooner or later and Lars Nupar and then Carlson, like, where's the at-bats coming for Paul DeYoung? So for $11 million or whatever he is, yeah, I would trade it for a player to be named later. For him to have a fresh start and for you to have that money to spend if you opt to do that. Go get a reliever that's still available yeah. on the market. Because there's guys that you can get for $10 bucks right now, like Andrew Chafin. You go out there and give him like a two-year, $20 million deal. That's probably enough to get mm-hmm. it done, something similar to that. that that's what I was going to mention is I, if you if you got a deal in which – you didn't have to eat any money or say you had to eat just a little bit of the money. I mean, he's only, he's got $9 million is the salary this year. Absolutely. I would do it. I'd send him to Boston, whether it be player to be named later or just cash considerations, I'd be willing to do it because then you free up that money in which I think they would use on a reliever. And I, I still think they need a reliever. And I think they're kind of reluctant because I think right now they're kind of like, yeah, we'll give like a million dollars to a reliever. I think I think they're kind of bargain shopping right now, and I think they should be a little bit more aggressive, be looking for guys that have more swing and miss. And I think part of the reason they're kind of held up on that is because I think they're at their budget, and I think if you can ship out Paul DeYoung's contract, free up some more money, you can go get a guy on a one-year, six, seven million dollar deal potentially. So I, I would say yes. I would say if you can, I would be looking to send Paul DeYoung to Boston, and I think I think he needs a fresh start. And I know I, I know it's not an easy fresh start sending him to that Boston market, but I do think he needs a fresh start. He would probably get the everyday opportunities there with Trevor Story being out. So I, I think it's a win-win for both sides. And the nice thing about this for Paul DeYoung is, like, I, I think he could actually have some success there with the Green Monster. I think that might end up helping him. I think he's a guy that would still hit for a low batting average, but maybe he hits, like, 40 doubles next year in, in a spot like that. But here in St. Louis with his launch angle, it just doesn't work here. Uh, the way that he plays, it, it did at first, and it, it hasn't in a long time. I think it could actually end up working out all right. And the other thing is he's not former all-star Paul DeYoung if he goes to Boston. He's just a guy that came in that Red Sox fan will look at the baseball reference page and say, this guy hasn't hit for the last three years. Why is he Why is he the guy? And they move forward. Here's a secondary point on this, Alex. What if the Red Sox said, we're not taking that contract on, but we have a contract with Chris Sale that – we're not super comfortable with. Ooh. I don't know how likely this is. We're going to talk to a Boston Red Sox reporter tomorrow to find out whether or not the Red Sox would even consider something like this. But Chris, Chris Sale's name has come up at times with speculation on would the Red Sox want to get rid of that money from their books. He's barely pitched the last couple of years. When he has, he's been quite good. But there is real injury risk with Chris Sale. $27 million this year. $27 million next year. If you traded Paul DeYoung... That is essentially $16 million in terms of the difference that you would be paying effectively to Chris Sale for this season. Next year, you still got the full freight of the $27 million that are hitting your books. Would you trade Paul DeYoung, maybe even include a prospect in there to sweeten the deal to get a guy like Chris Sale? Is that something you would be interested in, Alex, if the Red Sox made that proposition to you? I'd be interested in it, but man, that injury makes me nervous, especially considering you just have nothing next year with the exception of Steven Matz, and who knows what the re-signing is going to look like at spring training, but to have a guy who, if healthy, is an ace for your team, yes, I understand he's 34 years old, but 
I think I would have to look at that medical records and just evaluate it heavily. But if I felt confident that, you know what, maybe an injury pops up because of age in his past, but all things are pointing towards him having a healthy season, I would pull the trigger on that because you're saving some money. Well, you're not saving some money, but essentially you're you're paying a top end of your rotation for the next two years, like $14 million because of the offset of the money of Paul DeYoung. Man, he's a difference maker when healthy. And imagine adding that to your rotation this season. So I think I would be interested in it. See, I'd have no interest in it because he's too much of a injury risk for me. And I understand that most pitchers have injury risk, but he's above that for me. Over the last, since 2019, since the end of the 2019 season, when he wasn't particularly good that year, at least in terms of the ERA, his underlying numbers were much better. But since the end of that year, he's pitched a total of 48 innings. So 2020, 21, 22, those three seasons, he threw a total of 48 innings. Yeah, and that right there is the reason I wouldn't want to do it because it's just been too long since he's been able to show that he's been healthy. Had it been coming off of that 2019 year where the ERA was high, underlying numbers were good, now, of course. But you wouldn't he be able hurt. to get him coming off of that. I agree, but I'm just using that as kind of an example. If that was the guy you were getting, then sure. But because you've seen three years in between since he's been healthy and been been truly himself, I mean, when he's pitched, he's been fine. I mean, look at his numbers; been really good. He's yeah. been good, but. I, I think there's just too much injury risk, and I don't want that for a guy that I'm bringing in here. And potentially, you see him throw 48 innings over a two year span, and it's $40 million. And I understand you got some of that offset because of the DeYoung trade, but it's just too much of a risk for me. We've got a lot of conflicting text messages. That 314 never happens. 399 9646 is the Air Comfort Service text line. This one comes from the 573. Guys, this is the most ridiculous thing you've ever considered. Absolutely not. What a waste of money that would be for the Cardinals. Chris Sale won't even start 25 games combined over the next two years. Uh, Are you this- sure about that? Another one says, yes, yes, absolutely. Chris Sale is dominant when healthy. It is worth the risk. Another one, this is the dumbest thing that the, that you guys have ever even considered. Yeah, talk about aggressive. Uh, did you hear Tanner consider Seattle winning this weekend? <laughs> that was uncalled for. Another one <laughs> said, I would trade Paul DeYoung <laughs> for Dippin' Dots, so of course I would trade him for Chris Sale. Oh, we need better Dip, ice cream I was than say, that. Di- what? We need better ice cream for Paul DeYoung than Dippin' Dots. The reason why I find it to be interesting is because this year you would be paying $16 million for a guy who, like Chris Sale at his best, is going to be better than anything you could get this offseason that's available now for anything approaching that money. Even at the downside, like Chris Sale as a starter, would you rather have Chris Sale at $16 million essentially for this year? Versus one of the relievers that is available. I think it's at least a fair question. I'd if I just Chris presented Sale. you the opportunity of one year, $16 million for Chris Sale or any of the relievers that are available for like 10 to $12 million on a two-year deal. It's close. Maybe you prefer Chafin. Maybe you prefer one of those other guys that are available. But I think there's a real argument in favor of Chris Sale. And then the question becomes, are you willing to do that second year? Because that second year is where things get tough. 27, if it was just this year, I think, it's, I think yes. it's an obvious you go for it because it is worth the risk. That second year at $27.5 million, that could keep you out of next year's free agent market. That could keep you out of going out there and trading for a uh, Shane Bieber who's going to get a significant raise in arbitration. That could then limit you next offseason. That's where this gets really but tough. But are we confident they would even make that trade? No. And that's no. where I'm at because even if you go to free agency and Aaron Nola's sitting there and it's going to cost you money, I'm not confident that the Cardinals would spend the money. And then you were sitting here talking about not having an ace. 
And that's where it gets hard. That's where it gets really hard is like, I, I can see the case for it. Would I do it? Man, I I, I probably would because I'm, I, I'm more willing to take those risks. But it's also not my money. It's not my team. So it's easy for me to stay on the outside looking in. But, man, the upside of Chris Sale is enormous. Like, he could be the guy, if he's healthy this year, that gives you that number one starter that you've been looking for. You know what I always say, And $27 million, if he's right, is actually cheap compared to the going rate for for other guys that are going to be available. DeGrom. I don't remember what DeGrom's number was. 45? 45 is Scherzer and... Or was DeGrom 45? He's right up there, yeah. I I know Scherzer and Verlander were the same. That was like 45, Imagine what Aaron Nola's going to get if he has another really good year with Philadelphia. Exactly. So, I mean, you're talking... A, a very reasonable number. This is like Carlos Rodon money, but instead of for six years, we're talking about for the next year. So it's, I think it's worthy of a conversation. And that's why tomorrow we're going to talk to a Red Sox reporter to get a little bit more insight on the likelihood of it happening. It's one thing for us to be on the outside looking in and saying, Hey, this is interesting. It's another thing entirely for the Red Sox to say, yeah, that's something that we might be willing to consider with Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendricks. And I'm Brandon Kylie in 15 minutes. The blues defensive core is a serious problem. You guys knew that we'll talk about just how serious of a problem it is though. Coming up at one o'clock, the junk drawer is next. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Let's open it up. The junk drawer with BK and Ferrario. Brought to you by Fenton Bar and Grill. Best trashed wings in Missouri. Dine in. Carry out. Seven days a week. Ferrario and Tanner Hendricks and I'm Brandon Kylie. It's BK and Ferrario here on 101 ESPN. Alex, have you ever thought about how you get away if you committed a crime? Yes, all the time. Wait. Like what the getaway car oh, is. Man, you trapped me into that. Oh yeah. Who are you gonna be with? Oh yeah. Who are the friends that you'd call if you got into a bad spot and yeah. you had a body to hide or something something like that? Yeah. Hypothetically I've, speaking. Hypothetically, this is all hypothetically of speaking, of course. I would never think of doing something like this. But What's your yeah. getaway plan? I'm not going to give it to you. Why would I give you my giveaway plan? What, you think I'm stupid? Well, because a biker in Georgia is very much stupid. A bicycler or a motorcycler? A biker in Georgia was on the run from the law and almost got away with it until he prematurely posted about his victory on social media. The Clayton County Police Department has issued a warrant for an unidentified motorcyclist who uploaded the video of themselves being chased by the police (laughs) onto TikTok and YouTube. Dummy! Alex, if you have thought about what your getaway plan is going to be. Uh, Yes, usually in the first piece of the getaway plan is find a way to get off the radar. Please do that. Don't. Don't. Whatever you do, do not post anything about your getaway plan on social media. Well, I'm not stupid, man. What is this guy there's, or gal doing? There's a reason that when you watch the true crime shows and you're like, oh, that's how he got caught. Makes sense. The motorcyclist was being chased by the Georgia State Patrol. He managed to throw them off of their trail. However, authorities were able to identify the make and model of the rare sports motorcycle through uh, footage that was posted online via social media. There was only one of those vehicles registered in that area, and the authorities were able to track down their owner. 
He deserves to be caught. A hundred percent. Like you deserve to be caught. Man, you pulled off the heist. You got away with it. And now you're out here posting your getaway. Biggest on to TikTok. Biggest. You wanted the TikTok followers? Yeah. What is this? Corporate telling us to, that we need to get some more <laughs> social media followers biggest, on TikTok? Biggest reason that criminals get caught is because of ego, man. They get so cocky that they got away with it that they have to brag about it. And when you brag about it, guess what? They're going to find you. It would be so much easier. People just like originally, hey, I got away with it. Better get off the radar. Get out of the get out of the system so nobody knows that I got away with this. Man, the text line from the three one four. Oh, you guys are now coaching criminals on what what to and what not to do. Yeah. Who do you this think will be the best criminal between the three of us, Alex? I think it's pretty obvious. Not BK. Not BK. Come on now. That's very true. It's me. BK would dive so much into like the numbers of how to pull it off, and then like I would be the logistics guy. No, BK, BK would just I would tweet about it. Be the, Bk will put a poll out on Twitter about if he should get, <laughs> if he should do the next plan? step. Put all of the What's different my plans next step? out. You guys tell me which one of these Cardinals is the best. fans vote. What's the next step for me in my crime? <laughs> to choose your own adventure, yeah. crime edition. We're pulling off the heist. Hey, what, which vault should we go into? About to go on YouTube Live. <laughs> About to take this to Facebook Live right now. It would be me. I would be the one that would get away with because it. Because you're so cocky about it, I don't think you would be. No, I would. No. Tanner would end up like, you know, the opening scene, spoiler alert, uh, the opening scene in the Dark Knight where they like they all kill the guy in front of him. Oh. What? Ta- Tanner's that guy. Tanner's the guy who's at the end and just kills the last guy. And he's the, the only one that gets away with the heist. Yeah. But it's funny that you mentioned that movie, because when you brought up the story of this guy on TikTok, I picture the Heath Ledger like driving in the Joker car with his with hair, his hair like, yeah, like his hair like that. I she- just picture that with the guy with his phone. Here's how Tanner gets caught. Tanner thinks he's gotten away with it. Tanner's thinking smooth sailing. And then he realizes that he used his credit card on something. And then he gets tracked. He's going back. No, he's going back to the Kentucky gas station that he forgot to pay for. <laughs> he's going inside because they didn't have the credit card machine outside. He's got to and br- then pays for his gas with his card while on video. Waving at the video camera saying, hi. He's got a briefcase of $100,000 in cash in his trunk, and he uses his credit card to get gas. That's how Tanner gets caught. I don't think Alex could do it because Alex would be doing his crime in the middle of the day because he can't stay up late. (laughs) What are you talking about, man? I don't talk to people. I go grocery shopping and don't speak to individuals. Alex would 100% fall asleep at the wheel because he's been driving too long. Yeah. That's how you'd get caught. No, I'm actually good at driving. <laughs> Driving's not the problem. <laughs> it's when you sit down somewhere. I would be the guy that falls asleep in a motel somewhere trying to get away, and then they come knocking on the door because they wonder if the person's alive because he's been asleep for three days. Somebody on the text line said, BK would have to drive 15 miles back before being able to bury the body because he can't take a dump in the woods, and Alex would have to go to the n- nearest home of his relative because he couldn't take a dump ah, in the gas station. But you see what they said? Go to your nearest relative. That's how you get away with it. You got to be smart. Do you know? Do you have in the back of your mind who oh, that yeah. person is that you'd call? Oh, yeah. Multiple people. Come on, man. My, my last name Who ends in be, two vowels. If you had to pick between us uh, at the station, let's open it up. If you had to pick one person at the station to help you bury the body, who are oh, you going with? This is easy. Let's all say it at the same time. <laughs> one, three, two, two three. One. Jamie, Jamie Rivers. Rivers. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Who would be two? I guess that's even more interesting. Ooh, that's a good one. Um, Mine would be Stultz. 
Really? Yeah. Stol- the Italian? Well, that, yes. But Stoltz is that kind of guy that he would understand what the he situation you a follow up question. No. He, he would, would say, hey, Stoltz, yep. I need you. And he would say, what you got? Yep. You know the movie The Town with Ben Affleck? And he walks <laughs> in. Great movie. And he's like, I need you to help me do something, but you can't ask why and you can't ask what. <laughs> Where are we going? Where are we going? <laughs> it's great. That's Stalter. That's a good answer because I could see Stoltz being Who'd that be guy. the least likely one you'd tell? I know this one for me. It's your Rocchio. Yes! <laughs> Rocchio in a heartbeat. Rocchio would be shouting as he walks in, We're about to take all of your money! All of it! Give us all of your money! Walks, we do not have anything that can do any harm! He walks out from the house. So, Alex, where are we putting this body? This body, where are we going with it? Rocchio, come on, man. I think if I. I might go Tim McKernan. The least to likely or the most likely? Most likely. I might go, like, other than Jamie, I think Tim has so many damn connections around this town that he would be able to figure it out. You know Stalter's Italian, right? I do, but I think Tim has connections in high places. Tim and Randy, that's why you would call them. Uh, that's a good point. They've got friends in high places. But they that- got a lot of friends. Like, that's the thing. Talk to a lot of yeah, people. Sooner or later, it slips where it's like, yeah. hey, I just helped BK. Oh. Whereas Stalter, Stalter's the family man. Stalter's, Stalter's my driver. Family. Stalter's my driver. From what I understand about Stalter's driving record oh, God, and yeah. the number of speeding tickets that that man's had. I can tell you who my least likely driver is to be, and that'd be BK. Oh, my God. Yeah. Oh, come on. I Grandma was, over I was here? with you when we went to peek behind the curtain. When we went to Bush Stadium to be okay, in the press box a, for a game, and we mistake. ended up in Illinois. That was a mistake. <laughs> and what, did he drive 40 miles an hour to get there? No, no, we just, we missed our exit. Drove the speed <laughs> limit. It was fine. He, he drives, he goes... Oh, wait, I think we're going to Illinois. I went, what? <laughs> it was fine. Everything was fine. But get lost. <laughs> Coming up in 15 minutes. Hence getting caught. Yes. That's why BK's least likely to get away with it. I think I could get away with it, guys. Everyone always does. Just wouldn't post anything on social media anymore. Poll, ladies and gentlemen. Should I bury the body here, here, or here? With geotags in all three spots. <laughs> he's, got the, he's got the latitude and longitude on Twitter. You know how recruits just put the the little, like, pin Whenever they're on campus, <laughs> he shares his map where he's at. They put the pin like, hey, I'm in Columbia for this weekend. They don't say anything about it. They just put the pin with the location tag. I would just put the pin with the location tag with the exact like coordinates. And then on his tweet where he shared the location tag, he's like, so I'm in this area. Anybody can recommend good restaurants to go get some food in? <laughs> What's the best brewery in town? <laughs> just buried a body. Where's the best restaurant to go check it out? Speaking of burying bodies, the Blues defensive core, it's a problem. we got to talk about it next year on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Alex the Athletic posted their player cards the other day, their updated player cards for the 2022-23 season told a pretty clear story about the St. Louis Blues. And alongside Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kiley. It's BK and Ferrario on 101 ESPN. They have something called surplus value. Now, if you are in the economic side of things, you understand what this means. Essentially, what is the production that you're getting out of this player? What would that typically be worth in terms of a monetary value? And what are you paying them? If you are paying them more than what their production would lead you to believe that they are worth... Uh, That's a negative surplus value. If you're paying them less than what their production would be worth, 
that is a positive surplus value. So for Robert Thomas, the Athletics playing cards say that he's worth about $5 million more than what the Blues are paying him this year, which is a good thing because they're going to pay him about $5 million more next year than they are right now. Same thing is true for Jordan Cairo and Pavel Buchnevich is worth about $3 million more than what he's been so far this year. Makes sense. That line together has been the thing that has kind of saved the season in a lot of regards. Alex, it is very clear, though, what the problem has been for the St. Louis Blues. According to these same player cards by Dom over at The Athletic, take it or leave it, that's fine. Dom. But I think that they match up with uh, the eye test on this in this regard. Colton Pareko has played at a value that is $5 million less than his contract. Justin Falk has played at a value that is $4 million less than his contract. Tory Krug, $4.5 million less than what his contract is paying him. And Nick Letty, who is making $4 million this year, according to The Athletic, is worth $5 million less than he is making this season, which essentially means, yeah, you'd be better off just getting, like, literally anybody in there. Steve Santini would be better off uh, than what they're paying for Nick Letty right now. Don't you dare talk ill about the great Santini. They took it one step further, Alex. According to this, in terms of what you're being paid to do and what you've actually done, there have only been two defensive pairings this season that have been worse at five on five than the Letty and Pareko pairing in terms of what the surplus value is for Letty and Pareko. Moral of the story, the Blues have quite the defensive issue right now. The guys that they are paying to do a job have not lived up to any of those expectations. Is there any way to solve this in season, Alex, in your opinion? No, I don't think so. I think you are what you are right now. Unfortunately for the Blues, the only way to solve this is to get better play from your all-around team. And there's no trade that you can make to make your overall defensive game play better. I, I really think it comes down to the players on the ice need to kind of knuckle down and and focus on the area that puts them in such a bad spot, and that's the turnovers and the lack of consistent play. I, I was just looking at this. So last season, at this point of the year, the Blues were allowing 2.67 goals per game. And this season at this point, where you've played 42 games played, 3.57 goals per game. And my question is, what's the biggest difference from last year to this year at this same time frame? And if you look at the the individuals on the ice it's the guys that you're playing significant ice time i mean last season here are your top 10 in terms of time on ice per game pareko falk krug o'reilly thomas buchnevich scandela mikola tarasenko shen peron was 11th this is this season falk pareko letty krug buchnevich thomas o'reilly kairu shen tarasenko i mean it's the same defensive group with the exception of having Nick Letty on the ice more than Marco Scandella, but the forwards are the ones we're talking about here. You're talking about but it's the same forwards as well. Yes, that's the thing. Is like I, I I'm totally with you. I don't understand why they're playing this poorly. But but it's the same guys in both scenarios. It's the same guys. But that's why what I mean by to fix it, you got to get better play from the guys you have. Like Ryan O'Reilly played the fourth most ice time last season for you, and he was having a really good year defensively. This season he's a minus twenty eight and playing the seventh most ice time. Like, you've got Thomas and Buchnevich and O'Reilly, but then you've got the Kairos and the Chens and the Tarasenkos and the Sods that are playing a lot more significant ice time. I just feel like as a five-man unit, they're not playing the way that they played last year. It's just a lot more risk in their play, and they're not focusing on the simple plays compared to last year. It felt like they were focusing on those simple plays. 
I, to answer your question, I, I don't think there is a fix here in season. And, and I do agree. At times it is a five-man unit. But I, I think it's on the defensive guys, too, because I, I think your defensemen just need to play at a higher level. In my opinion, they have been the main problem in terms of this defensive unit, getting beat back door a lot we've seen this year, getting out-muscled in front of their own net. We've seen them turn the puck over when trying to exit the zone. And look, the forwards have done that, too. So, yes, it is a five-man unit problem. But I brought this up in the office before the show. Like, if you were to put Petrangelo on this on one of these defensive units – this defense would be better than what it is right now. The full unit would be better in, in terms of the holes. So I do think a big chunk of this comes down to the defensemen that you have, the guys that you've paid to do this, haven't lived up to their expectations. And I said defense was a problem going into last season. It was to begin the year until they added Nick Letty, and then things kind of somehow, some way, were able to level themselves out. And this year it's just been everybody back again to be in. It's, it's a problem. You don't have the defensive core that you thought you were building here in St. Louis. You're looking for the puck movers. Well, They've been okay at doing that, but they're just not good in their own zone. So I, I I don't think you can fix it in season. I think it's something that, going back to our earlier conversation, is you try to get some assets at the deadline this year and hopefully maybe use some of those assets to flip out some, some of these contracts and try and retool this defense on the fly in the offseason. The other thing, Alex, that I would add, um, when, when you brought up last year's stats on the, the goals allowed per game, it's also worth noting that last year, the Blues outperformed all of their expected numbers. And it they ended up continuing to do that all the way into the playoffs. And I'm not saying that that team wasn't as good as uh, what their record indicated. That team was really fun to watch, man. And they were really good. And if Bennington doesn't get hurt, I think they have a chance to win the Cup last year. So I'm, again, not taking anything away from what they accomplished and what they could have accomplished. That being said, when you're counting on that to sustain over years, not just games... Regression eventually typically hits. And this year, I have not looked. This is just my hypothesis. I would bet the underlying statistics this year are not all that dissimilar from the underlying numbers a year ago. The difference is last year, Villejuso stood on his head for a long stretch, especially around this time of the year. And he was way outperforming any reasonable expectations for what he could have done. I think Bennington's been really good this year. He has not performed wildly outside of expectations the way that at this point in the season last year, Huso had. So I, I think that's a big part of this as well is the defensive court. Maybe they're not playing all that much worse this year, but while Bennington is playing well, he's not at that like 99th percentile outcome. He's just at like the 75th or 80th percentile mm-hmm. outcome where he's just been merely good. And that's the difference between like the half a goal per game where they're at right now compared to where they were a year ago. And that would also make sense as to how they took a little bit of a step back. I think another thing is just like Perron, while maybe not a great defensive minded player, he puts the puck in the right spot and he, he played the cycle mm-hmm. where you're just having the puck a lot in the offensive zone. The best way for this team to defend is to not defend just to be on the offensive side of the ice all the time in the offensive zone. And O'Reilly's taken a step back this year. So between those two things, I think that's a lot of what's gone wrong for the forwards. Well, and look, by no means am I trying to take the heat off of the the defense because they have not played well this season. It's very evident. But I, I do feel like the system that the Blues are trying to play in terms of everyone goes as soon as the puck exits out of the zone, that includes the defensemen that jump into the rush. And the problem is when you're putting the puck in a bad spot where you're trying to go that pass into the zone across the crease and it turns into a turnover, 
turnover, you've got three guys going on the other side, whereas one defenseman had already chipped in. Now you got a three-on-one coming the other way, hence the backdoor plays. They have been out-muscled in front of the net. There have been a ton of puck-watching moments taking place, but I also feel like that's somewhat on the forwards in terms of not back-checking, not taking their man, and expecting the defense to do the job that they have to do when they're on the ice. He's Alex Ferrario. That's Tanner Hendrickson. I'm Brandon Kiley. In 15 minutes, I heard earlier today the morning show talk about Trevor Bauer. And I also saw a poll from Randy Carricker on Twitter on whether or not Cardinals fans would be in favor of the Cardinals signing Trevor Bauer. I was genuinely shocked by the results, and I'm not often shocked by the results on stuff like this. We'll get into that coming up in 15 minutes. NFL Quick Hitters coming up next. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast, presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. some NFL quick hitters alongside Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson. I'm Brandon Kylie. It's BK and Ferrario here on a 101 ESPN. Alex, let's start with another quarterback question because we knew this was going to become a conversation and man has it and it's happened quick. ESPN yesterday started the conversation about Justin Fields and whether or not he's going to be the long-term answer in Chicago now that they have the number one overall pick. Here's Mike Tannenbaum, former NFL general manager, on why he would not go with Justin Fields. Instead, he would trade Fields and take Bryce Young with the number one pick. I would trade Justin Fields for a one and a three to at least a dozen teams. Seattle, New Orleans, Carolina, New York Jets. There's a lot of different teams that need a quarterback. And then what I would do is I would draft Bryce Young, and here's why. I would then reset the quarterback clock on a rookie contract. Alex, I would not do that. I would build around Justin Fields. I also think that people just completely dismissing this notion are being unreasonable. If you're the Chicago Bears and you go through this evaluation process and you determine that Bryce Young in your mind is a better quarterback right now and long term than Justin Fields is, you are doing yourself a disservice by not selecting him and trading Justin Fields. I don't feel that way. I I love Justin Fields, though. I'm super high on him. I would want to build around that guy. I would trade down from the number one overall pick, try to accumulate assets that way instead of taking the quarterback one and trading to get more assets with Justin Fields. How do you feel about it? Do you think it's at least a reasonable question to ask? I mean, it's reasonable, yes, but I just don't agree with it because I think what you're doing is you're putting yourself in the same vicious cycle over and over and over where you're saying, we've got to get ourselves a quarterback. Well, let's this guy's not the quarterback. Let's draft this quarterback and build around that guy. What happens in two years when you feel like, well, he's not the quarterback and we're still at the top of the draft. Like I saw somebody tweet out earlier saying discussing trading Justin Fields in year two is the same as discussing trading Josh Allen in year two. And their numbers are actually quite similar in terms of passing yards, completion rate. And I just saw somebody else put this out, like saying Justin Fields and like saying he's not competent enough, like St. Brown, Dante Pettis and Byron Pringle were the wide receivers this year for him. That's that is, I think, the strongest argument in favor of Fields. Yeah. Is if you put some quality weapons around him, does he improve the way that Tua did this year with the Dolphins previously prior to this year? People didn't think Tua was necessarily a franchise-level quarterback. He showed flashes, but it was not consistent. Then you have Waddle and Tyreek and a quality offense that's around him with the scheme. 
suddenly he looked like a totally different quarterback. 53.7% of the snaps were for St. Brown, 50.7 for Pettis, 27.6 for Pringle, and the adjusted sack rate was 32nd last in, in the NFL. I do think he's a guy that's just going to take a lot of sacks, whether they improve the line or I think not. so, but too. The, the weapons are a huge problem. But you them. got a mobile quarterback who's shown you the ability to throw for over 3,000 yards in his second season with that wide receiver core. Why the hell are you going to go draft another quarterback who's got to figure out the NFL when you got a dude who just figured it out? So build around that player, draft down and stay in the top five, get more assets, build a competent team around your quarterback so that you can try and start winning in a couple of years. Yeah. Had I not seen signs of improvement from Justin Fields this year, then I think, yeah, absolutely. You trade him and you go with the number one pick and you take Bryce Young. But because I saw him take uh, strides forward, I, I think you stick with him. I think you trade out of that number one spot, you get assets, and you try to go the route of whether it be the two situation where you build an offense around him or also like the Jalen Hurts situation. Because Jalen Hurts, to me, is what like I expect Justin Fields to potentially be. Quarterback that can use his legs, run, and also with weapons around him, you can see the flashes of him being a great passer. Like DeAndre Hopkins, the rumors are out there that the Cardinals are going to look to trade him. He should be a guy that the Bears should target. I'm not saying trade the number one overall pick for him, right. but that should be a guy they look to bring in. And then you've got Hopkins, maybe Chase Claypool ends up bouncing back where you go and look for another wide receiver weapon as well. But to your point about Jalen Hurts, like Jalen Hurts last season, we were talking if he was even the number one quarterback, and then they get A.J. Brown and look at him now. Yep. Justin Fields is that's a better probably, quarterback. That's an even better comparison, in my opinion, than Josh Allen. Yeah, uh, the, the Jalen the Jalen Hurts is perfect but because, ju- again, but, you add in a significant asset to that mix. You build the offense around him. You give him the keys to the car, and he's now he was an MVP candidate this year. And I result. think Justin Fields is better this season than what Jalen Hurts was last season Agreed. for Philadelphia, and he doesn't have an AJ Brown. And I think he's just in general more talented yeah. than Jalen Hurts is. Yeah, I, I would stick with him. I do think it is a fair question to ask, and I think the Bears should do a, all of the evaluations necessary on this year's quarterback class. And then I think they'll come to the conclusion that their guy is the best guy. And I think that should make them feel even better about the long-term future of their organization. I I think it is interesting because remember Matt Eberflus had the comment, I think it was week like six, where I was like, hey, we realized that we should be using his legs more. I, I wonder if Eberflus will be the one that ends up pushing this towards, Maybe. let's go to Bryce Young, because it took him a while to adjust to Jalen Hurts. I don't think he, or excuse me, to Justin Fields. I don't think he necessarily wanted to run the offense that way. And if you do end up trading him and you get a first and a third, I mean, you could potentially even flip that first for DeAndre Hopkins and start it with Bryce Young as well. Uh, Speaking of DeAndre Hopkins, I wanted to discuss this. Yesterday, Jordan Schultz of um, The Score reported that the Arizona Cardinals are planning this offseason to try to trade DeAndre Hopkins. He has two years left and $35 million on his contract. He is likely to seek a new contract with whoever he ends up getting traded to. I think that this makes all the sense in the world for the New England Patriots. They're the team that when I saw this, I don't know if you guys saw the video of DeAndre Hopkins talking to Bill Belichick prior to their game between one another. Belichick had the highest praise for him that I've heard Belichick give to a person in one of those on-field settings that I've ever seen. I think he makes a ton of sense for for the Patriots. Is there any other team that immediately came to mind for the two of you when you heard that DeAndre Hopkins may become available via trade this offseason? I don't think they have the money for it, but the Packers jump to your mind immediately, especially sure. if you want to try and run it back with, with Aaron Rodgers. What did you say, T-Bone? I didn't hear you. Sorry, my mic wasn't on. <laughs> that's wild. Who <laughs> turned your mic off? I don't know. Uh, but I, I, all I said was, yeah, that's one that I had on my list, too. Uh, I'm trying to think of other teams. I mean, the Giants. The Giants, the Jets, uh, maybe the Saints. 
problem is like I don't know who their quarterback is. I think you have to have a quarterback in place to be able yeah. to make a deal like this. I, 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 Maybe honestly, the Ravens if they end up resigning yeah, Lamar. I don't think they have the money though. That's the problem. Really, the Bears, but I'm not trading my first overall Pittsburgh? pick for him. Pittsburgh was one on my Pittsburgh. list. Pittsburgh because makes a lot of sense. Kenny Pickett showed some strides that he could be the guy for them moving forward, and they they clearly need some help at the in the wide receiver room. So that was definitely one on my list. Another one that I had up there, and they already have a weapon, but hey, the more the merrier. What about Detroit? You add him to that offense with Jared Goff. Amazing I think Jamison Williams is going to be that new weapon it, that they. It's honestly, yeah. I don't want to. And this, I don't know much about DeAndre Hopkins. You only just bring up the fact that he's been traded twice. If this does take place, I don't know if I want to do that to that locker room. They seem to have something going right I now. Think that's fair. Actually. I don't want to mess with that. I think that is fair. Uh, all right, we continue with some NFL quick hitters here on 101 ESPN, guys. I thought this was interesting yesterday. Some betting angle to the Wild Card Weekend. Wild Card Weekend underdogs are 16 and 8 against the spread over the last five postseasons. Yours isn't an underdog, T-Bone. Yours is just a bad take. If they are facing a team that missed the playoffs last year, they are 10 and 1 against the spread. So going into this weekend, to give you the teams that that would apply to, the Jaguars would be one of those teams at plus 1. Who else missed the playoffs last year as an under? I think that's the only one. Giants? Uh, the Vikings made it last year, correct? The Vikings are the underdog? No, the Giants would be the underdog in this scenario, so the opponent. Oh, I thought you meant the underdog year. that missed I think last the year. the only team that Vikings this applies didn't make to. It last year? I don't think. I'm. Because remember, they fired, uh, what's his name? Oh, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, so the Giants. The okay. Giants would be the other Giants team. So are, those would be the two. Yeah. The Jaguars, who are just a one point underdog, and then the Giants is a three point underdog. Somebody asked us this earlier today. I want to get this out here. If you had to pick one underdog to win outright, I'm taking the Jaguars off the table because they're a one-point underdog. That's basically a pick Who would you go with? Winning outright an underdog by the spread this weekend. Tanner? Ah, ah, it's a Seahawk, baby. I would take the Seahawks to win outright. Is that a Seahawk? I tried. Do that again. You've never heard a Seahawk before. Uh, the, the correct answer and the only answer here are the Giants. Agreed. Get your Seahawk or whatever the hell the animal that was you out of here. you Gino? Yeah, I did. I just saw him gritty, but I also saw Pete Carroll ride a scooter around a corner in the America's locker room. America's favorite grandpa is going to have them ready to play. <laughs> it's the Giants. I, I mean, the Vikings are the most vulnerable team, I think, going into this playoff first round because of the way that their season ended. And I know they won a lot of games, but they won a lot of games because of one point possession or they held on or made a final drive. I think Saquon Barkley, Daniel Jones and Brian Dable are going to be ready offensively. And I think that defense eliminates Justin Jefferson. And we've seen if the Vikings don't have him, they have nothing. So I think the Giants are the best pick here as well. Let's go through these games real quick. We're midway through the week. Your pick could change by the end of the weekend. Maybe you see something else that changes. By the way, a quick update on the Lamar Jackson situation. Uh, Adam Schefter just reported 38 days after he strained his PCL, he is still missing another practice today. He is on track to miss his sixth straight game. So it's looking very nah, unlikely. You know what they're doing for they're, Lamar? They're just keeping him away from the cameras so that, that when you walk out on that field, number eight leads the Ravens out. Ah! Ah, ah, ah. Is that a Raven? That's pretty good. Seahawks 49ers. <laughs> the 49ers are a nine and a half point favorite. I, are we all picking the 49ers to win well, straight up? We straight all up. are winning them. No, I'm saying Seattle oh, pulls this geez. one off. I'm sticking now with you're it. Just, now you're just I backing a dead horse. I think Seattle finds a way to take down San Francisco. I don't trust Brock Purdy. No. It's the playoffs. Straight Give up at Gino. San Francisco. Chargers at Ra- uh, Jaguars. Jaguars are a one point home underdog. I've got the Chargers in this one. 
I think I'm going to pick the Jaguars in this one right now. I think losing Mike Williams hurts them significantly, and I, I they just offense seems to be figuring it out. To me, it comes down to coaching, and I trust Doug Peterson to make no mistakes. I, I trust Brandon Staley to do something dumb. Well, so that's very true. I'm going with the Jacksonville Jaguars. That is the best explanation you've ever given for a pick. <laughs> <He'll>, <laughs> Dolphins at the Bills. The Bills are a 10.5-point home favorite. We all agree? <laughs> take, the, take the Buffalo Buffaloes? Yeah, we're taking the Buffalo Buffaloes here. Yeah. Circle the wagons. We all like the Giants. We all like the Bengals, I'm assuming, with Lamar now announced yeah. as being out. Yeah. Roar. Cowboys at the Bucks. You like the Bucks? Yeah. Cowboys. Cowboys. Hey there, matey. Give me the Buccaneers. I, I think that the Cowboys fall apart. I think they end up finding a way to lose this one. Two awful takes and two awful impressions. Give me Tampa Bay. I, I like Tom Brady in this one. Somebody on the text line said, uh, sounded like a yard gnome in the dentist chair. Coming up next, Trevor Bauer should not be an option for the Cardinals. I'll tell you why coming up next. You're on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Inside Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendricks and I'm Brandon Kylie. We'll hit the rewind in about 10 minutes or so. <coughs> Guys, I was a little surprised earlier today when I saw on Twitter, Randy Carricker put out a poll asking a very simple question. When Trevor Bauer clears waivers, should the Cardinals sign him for the minimum to be added to their rotation? 50% of the votes, and there are 5,000 votes so far. This is not a small sample size. 50% of them said, yes, the Cardinals should sign Trevor Bauer. Now, here was Randy earlier today on the morning show. When Trevor Bauer clears waivers, should the Cardinals sign him for the minimum for their rotation? This is an exceptionally difficult question, but I do have to say this. I also can find, I'm really conflicted here, because if you add Trevor Bauer's talent to the starting rotation, then all of a sudden you're a World Series contender. No, I just disagree with that. I mean, you might be. Like, he he very well is correct on that, or could be correct at least, in terms of, like, Trevor Bauer's talent is hard to miss. Like, you can look at what the results have been when he's been healthy since the start of the 2018 season. He's made 90 starts, thrown 570 innings, and has a 3.0 ERA. It's essentially Jack Flaherty numbers. Like, when he's been healthy, he's been really good. He is a very talented pitcher. And also, no. There are certain guys that you just don't sign. Trevor Bauer is one of those one of those people. So not because of the player, but because of the person, could not have less interest in Trevor Bauer signing here in St. Louis. See, I just disagree with the concept of you're a World Series contending team if you add Trevor Bauer because I think he hurts your overall roster because I think he's a problem in the locker room. I think he becomes a I think he becomes a topic of the team. I think he becomes a talking point of the team. He becomes a distraction on a roster that is solely based off of guys that are kind of like picture perfect baseball players. And then you add this. I think this becomes a problem throughout a 162-game schedule. Like, you really think Trevor Bauer and Adam Wainwright get around, get along in a clubhouse? I, I don't care about the talent because I think the person ruins a clubhouse. 
So, no, I don't even agree with the sentiment that this team's a World Series contending team. Uh, the Air Comfort Service text line is 314-399-9646 from the 314. Tanner, you mentioned this earlier today when we were discussing Trevor Bauer. Somebody brings up, hey, guys, you should look at Trevor Bauer's numbers. Once the spider tack was banned, they also went down as well. 100%. He was one of the guys that, like, he spoke openly about how players were using this and how if he were to use it, Hypothetically speaking, uh, he knows exactly what his RPMs would go up when it came to his spin rate. So, yeah, I, I think Trevor Bauer is one of those players that was impacted by the the um, the removal of that as well. Yeah, I I agree. He's one of those guys that you look at and spider tax going to be a big topic of conversation for him because his numbers, though I just went back and looked, he only made three stars before his suspension came in uh, after the ban on spider tax back in 2021. Uh, his starts were fine. He still looked like kind of the same pitcher, but I know just remembering dating back to it, he was one of those guys that was up there in terms of who had the biggest drop-off in their spin rate, and Bauer was one of those guys. So, yeah, there, there's that element to it. I agree with your guys' sentiment of him being a distraction in the clubhouse. I mean, when you have an organization like the L.A. Dodgers that are, are cutting ties with him and reports are coming out that it's because they just couldn't have him in the locker room, and that's a good organization, a good team that will be on the field next year, whether you think they're a playoff team, win the NL West, whatnot. It says something. It says something about him. So I, I, I don't think he makes sense for the St. Louis Cardinals. Could I see the snare in, in them bringing him in? No, I, I truly can't. I don't think he's a St. Louis Cardinal-type player, in my opinion. Uh, from the 913, guys, I think this clubhouse can keep him in check, but if they can't at a league minimum, then all you have to do is release him. Here's the thing. If you're signing Trevor Bauer, you are all in on Trevor Bauer, and it doesn't have anything to do with the money. It has to do with the public backlash that you're about to take as an organization. Because if and when a team signs Trevor Bauer, they are going to have to do press conferences. It will be, it's not to the same degree. And I want to say that on the front end because I think sometimes we conflate these issues and they end up becoming like you're comparing one. No. But the way that the Browns had to handle the Deshaun Watson situation where you have to go up there and all of the important figureheads within the organization are going to have to do a press conference to announce the signing and then to explain the decision behind the signing. That's what you're going to have to do if it's in St. Louis or elsewhere if and when a team signs Trevor Bauer. Do you really see Bill DeWitt Jr. and John Mosellock and Michael Gersh and Ollie Marmel going up on a podium and talking about why this organization signed Trevor Bauer? No chance. No chance in hell. I, I would be... It would be the single most shocking baseball move, Alex, that the Cardinals have made since I have arrived in St. Louis if they were to go out there and acquire Trevor Bauer. Not only do I believe they should not do this, I, 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 I will not believe until it happens that they, they could or will do this. It's just not something this organization would ever consider, nor should they. No, I just think, I think the person itself is just a, a bad idea to put around a team that you're hoping to have World Series aspirations. You really want to put that person around all of these young players that you're hoping to be an asset for your team in the near future. You want to put a Trevor Bauer in a clubhouse where you're relying on the Ryan Helsleys. And, and you know what? Maybe some of these guys are, are great individuals and they'd be able to work with something like this. But I just... I wouldn't do it. I think it's a distraction. I think it's the only thing people are talking about, not talking about the product, talking about the Trevor Bauer. And on top of it, I just think the individual itself is more about himself than about the team. Man, I I am surprised. Maybe I shouldn't be, but by some of the texts that we're getting on the text line. Somebody says, guys, Bauer was proven innocent, period. He nor anybody else can prove otherwise. He was not proven innocent. 
he was proven to be not guilty. Those are not the same things whatsoever. And everybody should know that up front because of uh, the way that we've had to deal with these things in sports over the years. Uh, somebody else said, guys, what are we doing here? Was he criminally charged with anything or found guilty in court? No, you can't falsely accuse somebody of something when the courts found him not guilty. Maybe just warn him of his antics, saying that they will not be allowed here in St. Louis. You can warn him, but what if something comes up? Oh, and you really think you're going to be able to tell a guy who's on social media all the time and doing all of the stuff that he's been doing outside of baseball, hey, get off of social media. Has that worked in the past for this team to keep guys off of social media and to to get out of the eye of the public and stop causing problems? I don't think so. You guys don't know the guy. This is all BS. You gave no facts whatsoever. Just slander. What country are we in? He has his rights. Yikes. Guys, he has his rights, and because of those rights, he's not going to jail or having any sort of criminal charges that are now pressed against him. That's that's his rights. His rights do not include playing baseball. That is a privilege. And if another team determines that they want to sign Trevor Bauer because they view the the reward as being worth the risk, more power to him. I disagree with it. I think that that team should and will be criticized for doing so. But this is like when somebody says something that is a horrendous statement and they get dropped by like endorsements or potentially suspended or whatever. They can say whatever they want. Doesn't mean that there are no there's no backlash for what they have stated publicly. You have a freedom to say whatever you'd like. And also the league, the team, your employer has the right to reprimand you for saying things in public that are problematic or doing things in public that are problematic, even if you don't end up getting charged criminally for any of those things. So for me, no chance am I giving Trevor Bauer that shot here in St. Louis. For the Cardinals, I would be absolutely shocked if they're the team that takes this chance on him. And no, he was not proven guilty of these things. It doesn't change my personal opinion on the matter. You can believe whatever you'd like to about Trevor Bauer. Everybody has that right. Yep. I do not share a lot of the feelings that I'm seeing on the text line right now. Coming up next, we'll have the Rewind here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. And a lot of you are not going to be listening to that last segment on the 101 ESPN app or 101ESPN.com. But you can listen to any of the other segments. The podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers. That's where you can find it. Alex, earlier today, we talked a lot about the Blues. And you brought up how the Blues compare right now defensively to where they were at this point last year. I wanted to go back and look at, okay, in terms of the like actual stats, the realized stats, so goals for the stuff that fans care about, frankly. They were definitely better at this point last year than they are right now. But what about underneath the hood? Some of the the underlying numbers. How do they compare now this year to where they were at this point last year? It's it's pretty similar, honestly, in a lot of regards. Last year, if you're looking at the Corsi rating, which is essentially a measure of how much offense are you producing, Corsi 4 percentage this year, they are 28th in the NHL. Last year, at this point, they were 21st. 
shots for percentage. So how many of the shots are you having compared to your opponent? Last year at this point, 21st. This year, they're 26th in that regard. Expected goals for percentage. Last year at this point, 22nd in the NHL. This year, they are 24th. High danger chances for percentage. Last year at this point, 26th. This year, 24th, actually. They're slightly better in that regard. They're getting more of the high danger chances. Still not good, though, relative to league average. The biggest change between this year and last is the high danger save percentage. Last year at this point, they were third in the NHL in high danger save percentage. This year, they're 24th overall save percentage. Last year at this point, ninth. This year at this point, 23rd. You went from a top 10 team in save percentage and high danger save percentage to a bottom 10 team in those two areas. This is not a segment where I'm just trying to say, hey, the Blues are bad because Bennington's having a bad year. Absolutely not. It's unreasonable to expect your goalie to continue making that kind of high danger save percentage. But that's the biggest difference this year compared to last is those the unreasonable expectations of your goalie having to pick up for what the defense is not doing. And what's crazy about that is that's the one area that I'm not concerned about moving forward. If this team was going to compete goaltending, it's been fine. Uh, It's, you know, those high danger save percentage. And we were just talking about this in break and it would be hard to look at this. I don't even know if there's a stat for this, but to look at those save percentages in in situations where backdoor tappens, like we've seen this year, where it's just been easy goals for the opponent compared to last season, because I don't remember this team giving, up those scoring chances I remember breakaways last year I remember odd man rushes but I don't remember players just standing in front of the net for those backdoor tap-ins like they have this year I do remember that because I remember talking about Ben Sherratt as being an option for the Blues because they needed some muscle to get those guys out of the way yeah but I I just don't think there's an option like there's no reason there's there's no way to fix this in season I think this has to be an off the way you fix this is you go get a forward to play in your top six who creates more puck possession because more pucks in the offensive zone means there's less high danger scoring chances in your own zone. Either that, and that's probably the best answer, or completely overhauling this defensive court. And that is just not something you can do in the middle of the season. It's going to be tough. For Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kiley. We'll talk to you guys tomorrow at 11 a.m. Coming up next, it's the Fastlane from 2 to 6 right here on 101 ESPN. Ah! 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 Hey there, matey. Yeah! Roar. That is the best explanation you've ever given. You've been listening to the BK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN.